Hello and welcome to Nashville CA. I am one of your hosts, Josh Higgins. With me as always is my other host, Sean Perry. How you doing? Pretty good today. How are you? How's the weather out there? Oh, just terrifying, you know, not a drop of rain in months and windy last night. So, yeah, us us people over here in California live under a constant threat of fire and it's mm-hmm. just normal life at this point. I I'm, it's not it's not that scary yet, but we're all really, really stressed out for three to five months from now. It's going right. to be intense. But well, other than that, it's a beautiful day. I'm looking <laughs> at a peach tree outside my window. I have no complaints. Beautiful. Yeah. So uh, our movies today, we have Blood Simple from... I guess 2013, although I think it was released wide in 2015. You said Blood Simple. Oh, son of a... Uh, <laughs> I mean, Blue Ruin. I was way off on Blood Simple. That was from 1984 from the you Coen know, Brothers. They're both BL and then a two-syllable movies, so I understand it. They, they fit into a theme, kind of. Hopefully. Yeah. But, uh... Blue Ruin, which we'll be visiting first, was a 2013 thriller written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier, uh, also shot by him as he was a, a DP before making his own movies. That's director of photography for people that don't know these things. I always forget that. Blue Ruin was originally going to be Jeremy Saulnier's uh, second film, and he decided to make it with his best friend, Macon Blair, who, who stars in it, and... He actually um, got the initial money for it from his wife, like emptying her retirement accounts. And at some point during the process, they remortgaged their house. Um, He also ran a Kickstarter to gather money. He wanted a million dollars for it, but realized that nobody was going to give him a million dollars. He was a liability to his own project, even if people liked the script, when they realized that he wanted to direct it and he wanted to put his buddy as the lead who carries the whole film that no one was going to fund it for that. So um, he bought his own camera, a Canon C300, which is a great little camera came out a few years ago. What, uh, what is this shot on? Is it digital or is it on film? It was shot on that Canon C300 digital. It's like okay. kind of a prosumer level camera. I was looking him up after uh, watching part of this the other night. You can get them for about 1800 bucks now. So, if there's any oh, aspiring wow. filmmakers out there that like the look of Blue Ruin, you can achieve it for less than two grand at this point. This movie's beautiful. Yes. Especially for digital, um, it doesn't have that grain that kind of plagued digital, especially early on. This, yeah. this movie looks really crisp. And if you look at this back-to-back with a Murder Party, you can see like the amount that he learned about his craft in the intervening years five or yeah. six years in between have you seen murder party yes it's a little rough around the edges but i i find it really endearing uh, yeah. so much so that i i emulated the halloween costume from that movie where one year i made an entire suit of armor that looked really crappy out of cardboard <laughs> boxes <laughs> i went to a party like that and people loved it people were like oh that's like the coolest costume and i've never i've never gotten compliments for another costume in my life that's amazing. So thank you, Jeremy Saulnier. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I've seen this and then his follow-up 
um, Green Room, and those three are excellent. Into the Dark, I think, was his one that premiered on Netflix. That oh, didn't quite do it. Hold, yeah, it didn't quite do it for me as much. Uh, I yeah. didn't quite have any idea what the hell was going on with that movie, honestly. There was some weird stuff where I feel like Sonya kind of does simplicity best. Mm-hmm. Uh, with their, so, but um, getting back to Macon Blair, had he acted before this movie? Uh, not a whole lot. He had been in some of, um, uh, I believe, a short and then in Murder Party. And that's pretty oh, much what that's he right. He's yeah. he's the werewolf in Murder Party, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Okay, he's excellent in this movie. I mean, I think it helps that the guy kind of has a sad puppy dog face to begin with. Yeah, but it, I mean, obviously he carries this movie, but this movie could have been a complete failure if if the audience doesn't buy into his character. And he spends so much time in this movie just looking at his face, reacting to things. Yeah, no, he's... (laughs) He has... It's gotta be somebody with a good look. He probably has 200 words of dialogue or something. Mm -hmm. He doesn't talk for 30 minutes, the first 30 or so of this movie, basically. Um, So yeah, we spend so much time with just him in his life uh, that his performance has to carry it because there's no writing really to speak of to... To help us empathize with this guy. And if you want to know more about the the making of this movie, there was a uh, an article that Jeremy Sonia wrote for Movie Maker Magazine um, in between uh, Blue Ruin and Green Room, where he details some of the process and some of his thought thought processes going into it, um, and basically why you should not emulate the way that he did it, putting everything on the line for this one shot. Uh, But he was adamant that they were going to shoot for 30 days rather than kind of the standard 18 that he had been shooting for the last few indie films he had done. Uh, And he really wanted to show the scope with all these different locations. Um, He knew that he couldn't get a bunch of actors on the screen at the same time, but he knew that he could get some kick-ass locations and really highlight them through the cinematography and tell the story that way which he definitely does. So, uh, this yeah, one I also noticed movies, that but it, this one in particular is great. Yeah. Uh, it, it just to keep it in family, it looks like making Blair's family members were the, 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 the they made the score. Yes. They, did I, the I'm completely blank. they were, they composed, they composed for the movie. Yes. Uh, and making Blair um, has gone on, to write and direct on his own. He did uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, which was, I think that, was that a Netflix? Uh, I, I believe that was a straight to Netflix, but it was yeah. a big release for them. I remember it being on the front page for a day or two. Yeah. And that movie got, I think, pretty universal praise. I think everyone really enjoyed it. I know I did. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember the lead actress's name. Elijah Wood is awesome in it it has a real funny dark line of comedy through it um yeah i'd yeah. love to watch it again uh the actress is melanie linsky who um did a lot of supporting film roles and then she was on two and a half men for a couple years i believe not a show she was really fun she was really funny in that movie yes 
She's so if you just want, if you want to watch a funny movie about somebody who's just fed up with everything in life and at the end of their rope, um, yeah, check out I Don't Know What to Do. I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Yes. <laughs> it's a tough title. It's a clunker <laughs> for sure. But he's also slated to uh, direct, write and direct the Toxic Avenger reboot. Uh, make it oh, cool. I don't, was that, um, was that a, ha- not a hammer. What's the other company that produces all those schlocky horror movies? <laughs> it's, a, it's a trauma film. Trauma. Thank you. That's a yeah. trauma movie, right? Yep. I've never, I don't know if I've seen any trauma movies. That's the, the crew that I worked with for this last feature that I shot was actually a lot of the trauma people, which is pretty cool. Um, I've only seen a few of the movies myself, um, which the Toxic Avenger is one of them. I got to see it at the uh, the Belcourt Theater here a couple years ago. That was a good time. Nice. Well, anything that Macon does, similar to Jeremy, I'll definitely be interested in at least checking out and seeing seeing what's going on with their their work after this these movies. Oh yeah, I, d- I definitely love their kind of their view of the world and that they seem to share. Yeah. So you want to get into, um, into Blue Room yeah, and some details? Yeah, let's get into it for sure. Okay. So uh, we open with Megan's character in a bathtub. He's in somebody else's house, um, which you don't know at first until the family comes home. And then you see him jump out the window naked, uh, which is just a great little kind of detail, I think, that the towel gets caught on the, <laughs> on the windowsill. Yeah. <laughs> I always like when you see a, a nude butt 30 seconds into a movie, you know it's a sign of a good time. Yes, exactly. Uh, but no, it's already, there's, this movie does a great job of informing you about a lot of stuff without dumping shitty exposition dialogue on you. And so mm-hmm. right off the bat, he there's a part where the hot water's running and he turns it off and you can hear him listening to see if anyone's coming. And so right. right off the bat, you're getting this idea of, all right, who is this guy? And then he runs out in the backyard and steals clothes off the uh, off the drying line. Yeah. Uh, and so right off the bat, I mean, we know so much about this character in one minute without a single word being spoken. Right. And the next little sequence is all him, like, trying to scavenge food from the trash uh, and kind of making his camp in his car where he's been living for the last several years. Yeah. Um, did you and it's go ahead totally totally wordless and but you know so much about him but it also leaves so much unanswered so that like kind of gets fleshed out through the rest of the movie yeah and like i said macon looks like a sad puppy i mean less so in these first parts he has a giant beard so he doesn't quite can't quite make out his face but right. um he's also digging food out of the dumpster by a fair and he's hanging out near the beach, so he's just surrounded by sounds of people laughing and having fun and doing things together. And he's just this complete loner, gutting fish and reading books by uh, flashlight in his car. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we can tell he's been there for a long time because he has a nice little kitchen set up. And you can tell he's he's got a complete system to this way of living. Yeah. Uh, and... It's not very long into the movie, but you already feel very, like, sunk into his world. Uh, and he's woken up from 
sleeping in his car by a police woman who asked him to come down to the station with her. Uh, and how much of the, the plot did you catch on to, like, at this point, and how much does it take kind of the rest of the film to fill out for you? Uh, that's a good question. This is my fourth time watching it, I think. Yeah. I, I've, I saw this movie once, and then it was like, I have to show this to somebody, and then I had to show it to somebody again. This Sunday for my morning movie club, I'm showing it then, so I'm going to watch <laughs> this movie again. I, I adore this movie so much. So, yeah. um, I don't quite remember first time how much I picked up on, but just the fact that the when the officer knocks on his door, she's so gentle, and then she uses his first name. Mm-hmm. Things like this are just uh, informing us of so much character past that we don't even right. need to be told, but these people clearly have a, a personal relationship. And the way she treats him so tenderly and so um, mother, motherly tells you right. a lot about how fragile he probably is and then we yeah yeah, and she so she pulls out the an article and says i don't think it says a guy who was acquitted or of convicted of murder in 93 is getting let out let out of prison and uh he murdered i believe she tells do we find out at this point that it was his parents she says i'm sorry what happened to them or something like that um Yeah, basically, and this is a thing where uh, all of the details in this movie, it took me three or four times of watching it to realize how tightly constructed this movie is and how, like, nothing is wasted. All these little points are are brought up and expanded on and, like, help fill out the world of the movie. Oh, I love it. So, yeah, so, yeah and he looks just mortified that whoever this murderer is has been let free and so we go back to his camp now and he starts packing up his camp and one thing that i thought again with this backstory so little wasted information the battery of his car is in a plastic bag in the trunk just telling you how permanent his camping site is there you know he's been there for weeks or if not months and so just another little thing without the exposition one tiny detail again and again in this movie one tiny detail tells you so much yeah and we also see that he keeps his car keys on an on a necklace on a beaded necklace um, around his neck which comes into play a couple times later uh, and that's where we see the paper that he was given the that details the the plea deal about the double murderer being freed so uh, at this point he basically packs his car up gets all of his money and we hard cut from him throwing away a bunch of his stuff to just guns in Iraq. Yes. It's kind of a, it's a startling cut that the first thing he does with this knowledge is goes in search of a gun. And the fact that it's Mm -hmm. hard cut to that makes me kind of jump. Right. But it informs you like you, you don't know what's happening. You don't know why he's doing it necessarily. But he gets the news and then immediately goes for a gun. You get the idea that he's either protecting himself or he's going on a hunt. Uh, you know, that's exactly what he wants to do. And it's so economical. Like, I, I just cannot praise how tight this movie is enough. It's amazing. Yeah. 
So after this, we get a, a little bit of a travel montage, and I love it. There's some really cool um, pursuit shots where it's just it's following his car from about 15 feet above it, and it's pretty obvious that they just threw a camera on a pole or something like that and stuck it through a sunroof <laughs> of a car or something, but it works. It's such a cool oh, yeah. little shot, and it's such a nice way to do it on a budget. Um, uh, really liked that a lot. And it's so foggy, like, and mysterious looking, and this beaten up Pontiac Bonneville kind of driving through this fog, just, it's it's got a beauty to it. He definitely knew what he was doing when he did that. Yeah, for sure. I, car choice in movies and TV shows is so surprisingly important, but like, just off the top of my head thinking of Breaking Bad, we have Saul's little beat to shit like nissan metro or something and then yeah or or, sorry and better call Saul. and in breaking bad you have waltz um aztec and those cars i think say so much about the characters that you could really get a car choice wrong for someone that's i think saul's car is actually called in esteem oh that's right that's that's even better you're totally right that makes it so much funnier So, Macon Blair drives to a bar. Oh, no, excuse me. He drives to uh, the prison, correct? Um, no, the first thing he does, he drives to uh, a bar, uh, and he kind of oh. checks some people's cars, and he's looking in cars. You're not quite sure what he's looking for. And then he busts open a window and pulls out a gun case from one of the cars. Doesn't just bust open a window overhead slams a cinder block through it <laughs> it's so clear during this part it's like oh this guy has nothing left to lose right. he's taking such gigantic risks with everything that he does um yeah so he drives to that i want to know where that overlook point is he drives oh, yeah, to this beautiful. overlook pass and it overlooks these misty blue forests beneath it it's an unbelievable spot and uh, we see him trying, to, when he opens the box in his car to see if he, what kind of gun he got, there's a trigger lock on it. <laughs> of course. This movie's pretty funny. It has some good little funny um, funny moments to bring some levity to it. Otherwise, yeah. it'd be really heavy. And uh, so he pulls out the, what, what does he do? A, a rock and a crowbar and starts trying to smash the trigger lock off? Yeah, he and there's like, it looks like he's murdering somebody practically like the way the shots are. Uh, and he's beating the shit out of this gun with a crowbar and winds up knocking the cylinder out of the gun instead of taking the trigger lock off. Just breaks the gun. <laughs> That's such a classic kind of Homer Simpson moment when the thing that you're banging on, everything else breaks around it. And that yes. thing is still standing perfectly. <laughs> And he just kind of, like, he dumps it into a trash can there beside, like, this beautiful greenway. And he just looks so sad. It looks, like, like so Charlie Brownish when he does it. Kind of, hmm. Yeah, at least put it in a recycle bin. <laughs> put it in litter. Come on, man. But <clears throat> that's when he goes to the prison. Okay, yeah. And so... He's sitting at the prison um, near the exit, entry exit gate waiting, and a limousine pulls past him playing obnoxiously loud music. Mm-hmm. 
and a whole string of wonderfully nice looking people get out of the limo <laughs> looks like it looks like they might be coming from the opera i'm not quite sure yeah uh but even in this little sequence like you see all these different people pop out and then you see one of the women trying to pull someone else out of the car and the person won't, won't get out of the car uh and once again this is a detail i didn't notice until the second or third viewing um uh, but that comes back to play two times in the movie of uh, this kid that she's trying to pull out of the car. It's pretty impressive. That's really good because I didn't even pick up on that this time around. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so we see this family or these people are waiting for the guy, the murderer, to get out of prison. Mm-hmm. And he walks out and he gets in the car and it's a big party and Macon follows them and uh, the limo pulls over at some roadside highway bar and so Macon drives past it and pulls off and this is where the movie really starts to kick into gear yeah uh and the thing is he he doesn't actually have a great plan and he doesn't have a weapon at this point but you realize that he's going to confront this person in some way shape or form and he kind of works his way around the outside uh to the back of this bar that they're sitting in and he walks through the kitchen and grabs a steak knife like did did he grab that knife or was that his fish gutting knife that we oh, saw that him gut a fish gutting knife yeah because it looked like a fillet knife that we yeah. and we saw him gut a fish earlier because i had the yes. same question because the knife does not he goes through the whole back courtyard goes through the kitchen ends up in the bathroom and it's not till in the bathroom we see him drag his hand along the counter and then the knife is introduced Right. And so as like the audience, we're sitting there watching this theoretically unarmed guy sneaking around. And then when that knife is introduced, again, similar to that jump cut uh, to the gun shop. But it left me with this stomach dread of like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, this is this is suddenly the stakes are so much higher. And this is where I really, really start to get my heart beating. And then macon hides in the bathroom he hides in a stall and this is where his acting is incredible because this guy shows fear and terror on his face Mm -hmm. excellently so good and it is it's as uh wade the guy that he's he's there kind of stalking walks into the bathroom and uh, macon like he looks like he's breaking down he looks like he's stealing up his courage at the same time and there's a few scenes in this. Um, later on, he's uh, injured, and he a different scene. He's throwing up, and all these scenes. I'm like, did he actually throw up? Like, it looks like he's actually making oh, himself sick for the for the shot. I love real puking on movies. I admire it because I think it's so easy to spot a fake puker. Megan yes. Blair was absolutely real puking. You you <laughs> can you can tell that was a hundred percent, and I loved his dedication for it. Yeah. But uh, so he's hiding in the stall as uh, Wade is using the bathroom and you hear kind of the conversation of uh, the different family members out there. Uh, But we're so in Macon's or Dwight's point of view that they kind of fade the audio to match what he's paying attention to at any given time. Yeah, it's almost like that Charlie Brown audio mix that you get where all the characters are about and you're just picking up 
little little tiny segments of these conversations but you can tell it's almost you know when your adrenaline is pumping it's kind of how you hear and take in information you know it's things are there but you're not really processing right and they do this two or three other times in the movie like when he first got the news about the guy getting out where everything goes to his point of view and it fades to kind of a, a whoosh and an ambient sound rather than being able to hear people talk. Um, and it's just such a, a nice detail and such a good way to put you in his mindset, I think. Um, and so Macon is... Uh, the guy's left alone in the bathroom and Macon's looking at him through a crack in the, in the door. And then the guy spots him in the window. It's like his one chance for, you know, the element of surprise and to have the advantage is completely gone and mm-hmm. this is this part shocked me the macon jumps out of the the stall and it looks like such an incidental thing he just does one swipe and he nicks his artery and it's such like a little thing that it it grosses me out way more because it feels it doesn't feel gratuitous or glorified in a hollywood way it just shows you that knife fights are fucking terrifying right and these Violence is instantaneous in this movie, and it's grotesque, and it's disturbing. And so the guy has his jugular slit, and he slams Macon up against the wall, and you can tell he's kind of realizing that something's not right. He's losing a little bit of power, and then Macon goes all the way to the handle deep into the guy's temple with a blade and (laughs) drops him. Blood just spurts out at this point, and it is, uh, it's almost comical, the next shot that you see of Macon, when he's outside the bar, well, because right he's covered. That, mm-hmm. The guy is blinking on the ground. Oh, yes. He's just lying there with blood spurting out of his temple, and he's just blinking. And the fact that he's blinking makes it so much more fucked up and disturbing and... I don't know. It just the violence in this movie is more visceral than almost any other violence I've seen. Mm-hmm. And so his, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Macon, Macon, yeah, when it cuts outside, he looks like a butcher. <laughs> yes, and it's just like all of a sudden, and there are so many times during this movie that you realize that he is in over his head, that he should not be doing what he's doing. Yeah. So Macon runs out to the car, and surprisingly. Nobody has found out what he did yet. He seemingly got away with it, and he gets into his car, and he goes to start it, and he reaches for the keys, and the keys are gone, and we cut back, and uh, the guy pulled the keys off his neck, and they're lying on the bathroom floor next to his dead body. <laughs> yeah, during their fight. Uh, as, so right once again, as, it, uh, it's one of those little things, it's very Coen Brothers-esque, where it's one tiny decision a character makes to have the yes. key around the neck or to not leave the key in the ignition. It's very Coen Brothers-esque that like, these small decisions have huge, huge impacts in these movies. Yeah. Uh, when he was running out to his car, uh, making knives the one of the tires of the limo and slices his own hand open as he's trying to pop their tire. I don't like that part. <laughs> Again, it's like it's like watching a paper cut in a movie. There's something yes. so... Because you see it from the... His hand is hidden by the frame, but you can tell he stabs it and stabs it too hard, and his palm slides down the blade. 
Yep. And it just makes me immediately think of every time I've done something stupid in the kitchen and yep. felt felt that knife on me. And so again, this movie with these tiny little cuts and these minimal things is making me feel so much more grossed out and making me empathize with the violence in a way that uh, Jason and Freddy, Michael, all these guys, I don't feel anything when I watch people get decapitated or eviscerated or whatever. But my God, slicing open your palm, I can feel that. Oh, yeah. That's, I just went and watched the new, the new Saw movie, Spiral, and I didn't have near the reaction to any of the traps or, or things that people go through uh, in that movie as I did for this, this little moment where he slices his hand open. Yeah, it's excellent. And during this part, there's the drone soundtrack. I love the soundtrack. It's not much of a soundtrack per se, but it's just like a great ambient score. And during mm -hmm. this part, similar to uh, Blood Simple, as we'll see later, there's just this whoa, 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 whoa kind of thing that builds as he's driving away in this limousine and the knife blade is still stuck in the tire <laughs> as he's driving away down the highway and he's losing blood, and you know he can't go that far in this limo. And, oh, it's so good, and it's so intense. And this this part is definitely just like a what-the-fuck-is-gonna-happen-now moment in the best yeah. way possible. I, at this point, I am so in on this movie and the train, just the out-of-control train ride I'm about to go on. Right. Uh, it, it's, oh, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And it feels like in a lot of other movies, a lot of revenge movies, like this first act would be the whole movie just up to them, like committing the violence on the person they're trying to get revenge on. But this movie is so great because it basically opens. It starts with him getting his initial revenge. And then the rest of it is what plays out after that. And kind of what does that run upon you? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of the difference between the only other country I've watched a fair amount of revenge movies from is Korea, but mm -hmm. American movies tend to glorify revenge as, you know, you get your closure or whatever and when you kill the bad guy. And right. Korean movies typically teach the lesson that by pursuing revenge, you yourself are becoming a monster too. And so yes. you're sacrificing yourself in this quest for revenge. And so I yeah. think this movie... It's definitely, it's the antithesis of American action movies. And often, oftentimes it sets something up, sets up something that we would typically see in a Hollywood movie just to then go the opposite way with it. Right. Yeah, just even that scene earlier when he was looking at, at the guns in the, in the case, like normally the person would just get a gun then. There wouldn't be the scene of him afterwards trying to steal one out of a car. Uh, but he didn't have enough money to, to buy a gun. So he bought a postcard and a stamp instead. <laughs> oh, like, that's right. The postcard. I forgot about the postcard. Yeah. It's such a little moment. And he writes a postcard to his sister then instead of getting this gun. Yeah. And he just kind of each step of the way, he's kind of improvising and, and making it up. Um, but it makes you realize kind of how made up and bullshitty like a standard Hollywood uh, revenge film would be because of these beats that it hits no so, absolutely i i think you're totally right that this this movie would have been stretched to 80 minutes and that bar scene 
or shortly after would have been the end of it. Mm -hmm. But instead, all of a sudden, we hear a, a thumping coming from the back of the limousine. And Macon pulls over, and there's some kid, probably like 14, 15 years old, who looks terrified. And what's the what's the guy he killed again? What's his name? Wade. Wade. He, uh, the kid goes, oh, did you kill Wade? And Macon goes, yeah, Wade killed my parents. And the kid just says, I don't think he did, and runs off down the highway. And then yep. it's, holy shit, this movie just flipped me upside down because I was absolutely in the camp that this was justified. This was that old classic timey, old timey revenge. And yeah, I, I just thought we were on that kind of Western style revenge story. I didn't think this movie was going to throw any twists or turns into it. So suddenly right. this idea that, um, Macon, is his name Macon? It's not Macon in the movie. Dwight. Dwight. Thank Dwight you. <laughs> Colin Macon. Um, it, you know, I, I just, I didn't think I was going to have to question Dwight and if Dwight was justified in this as the movie was started and was going. And so this is a right. real, real big moment for me. What did you think about this part? That's, I love this moment. First of all, that kid, um, he plays the, uh, the interviewer in green room. It's the same kid. The kid with the mohawk? Yes. That's Mohawk Kid? Yep. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah. I love I love when directors you know directors and actors who clearly like working together or a director who keeps actors working. Um, yes. I love that. Until it gets yeah. to a Scorsese DiCaprio level. And then I say, guys, it's time to move on. Yeah, come on, see other people once in a while, <laughs> But the just the detail in this moment, like I said, the from the first little section where his mother or sister, whoever it is, just trying to pull him out of the car, to the detail that he jumps out and he's got a uh, like a Game Boy that he's been playing in the back of this car, and it just sets up so perfectly without actually having to deal with any exposition that he was brought on this family outing to get his jailbird uncle or whoever it was. You know, pick him up at the prison, and he was left in the limo, uh, and didn't want to deal with it. Like I just love that because it seems like a real teen moment that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. So like, he wasn't even alive when the murders took place. This kid. Well, I, I don't think so because it says I think it says ninety three was when the murders happened, right? There's a detail later that. Um, Brings that oh question. yeah yeah you're yeah you're right you're right <laughs> actually <clears throat> that's right we do get a timeline on that kid it's a real yes. real fast moment yeah so um oh this is pretty funny so dwight dwight goes to his sister's right and he's standing in her driveway at this point uh, well he broke into another house and cleaned up first so now he shaved off this beard that he's been growing for years and he cut off his long wild hair and he looks he stole some khakis and like a button-down shirt. It looks uh, and a braided belt. He looks ridiculous. Yes. yes. And, and a like, bandage, this is, this a bandage on his hand. He looks. It, it looks preposterous. Yes. And that's how he shows up to his sister's house. Uh, so she thinks, for a few minutes, I think that she actually thinks he's cleaned up his act, 
or has gotten things together to the point where he's got some kind of light. Yeah. And this is, I love this scene. Um, he and his sister go to a diner, a little restaurant and sit down across the table from each other. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this scene was absolutely heartbreaking for me. I I was crushed by this scene by multiple reasons. But uh, how did you how did you feel during this thing with his sister? It's such a great like example of uh, how Sonia writes these this story because you get all these details filled in without an actual exposition dump. You get that he's been gone for years, um, that they kind of have kept up with each other's lives in bits and pieces. Um, she says something about her two kids, and she's like, did you even know that I had kids? It's like he's missed out on all this family time since that. That part was heartbreaking, because both, yeah. both actors are giving wonderful performances. I don't know who played his sister, but she she really sells it. I I... I I buy into this scene 100%. And you can tell there's just, there's so much pain. Um, and there's so much that these two went through that. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's like, even though she wants to judge him for running off and for, for being gone, she can't quite bring herself to do it. Even when mm -hmm. he says, I saw you at the boardwalk with your kids. And she said, right. you, you didn't say hi. It's like, we know, we know what, Dwight looked like living there. Yes. There's no way he could come out from underneath the boardwalk and, and walk up to his niece and nephew who he's never met before and his estranged sister. It just, I totally get why he wouldn't do that. But this scene just really brings to me how, how much heavy past there is with family and just everything yeah. that family shares and how complicated those relationships are. Uh, there's one funny line during this where he says, uh, I'm not used to talking this much. And it's 27 minutes into the movie, and it's basically the first time we've really heard <laughs> Dwight talk at all. And so I right. thought that was kind of a funny little fourth wall break from Saulnier. And in middle of this conversation, another moment of levity. <laughs> They're having, like, both of them have tears in their eyes. They're having the most, like, intense brother-sister conversation and then this guy next to their table goes, excuse me, could I get your ketchup? Mine doesn't yeah. have any. It's like, dude, read the room. Now is not the time for your condiments. <laughs> that reminded me of the, guac the guacamole scene in Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When the guy's making table-side guacamole as the most intense conversation on the planet is happening at the table. Yep. Uh, so, that was... That was awesome. And I think it shows such a great um, subtle hand for Saulnier to, to interject it with moments of levity without ever pushing it too far into slapstick or anything like that. Well, and the fact that several points of like exposition get out, the, the fact that she's got kids now becomes kind of a plot point. Um, she says, you know, we've got the other keys for your, for your car. We still have the, the spare set of keys for your uh, Pontiac, uh, which becomes a plot point later. Uh, and it's one of those things that I never would have noticed except for on multiple viewings at this point. Uh, because I didn't actually question how he finds car keys later uh, oh, right. to get back into his car. Yeah. But 
it's she says it right there, but it's not like beating you over the head. No, it, it, it's brilliant because for a movie like this or for a Coen Brothers movie to work, you basically have 25 little puzzle pieces. How mm-hmm. do we take his keys away from him? How do we get the keys back into his hand? How do we arm him? How do we disarm him? And I feel like this movie, every single choice was made in a really smart way that feels completely believable because nothing nothing feels like it's out of a movie. All, all of the ways right. that these pieces move, it feels very realistic because everything is so so small. Every The small things make such huge differences again in this movie. Yeah. So at this yeah. point, he um, he realizes that, oh, shit, the registration is in mine or is in your name, sister, which means that they have your address now. Yes. And the, oh, the sister, uh, Sam, also tells, uh, she mentions that the Wade's family runs the local limo service, which is why they had the limo to begin with. Uh, she mentions that they've gone on to be successful and it like eats at her every time she sees one of their cars driving around town, um, which is another one of those little details of, uh, she's been trying to get past the death of her parents at this guy's hand and holding this grudge against his family all these years. And it still burns her every time she sees some, some sign of them. And she's faced with it all the time. Like it gives you this moment that Dwight has run away and has been able to bury his head in the sand a little bit. And that Sam has, by trying to live a traditional life, uh, had to face this pain a lot more often than he has. Supposedly. Why do you think his sister stayed in that house? Because it, I believe it's shown to be their childhood home. I think that's implied, at least. That where the sister yeah. live is where they grew up. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. Like, well, it, if I you experience wonder... trauma like that, I feel like a, a, a fresh start might be the best move, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, but we see what happened to Dwight. He was... That's, I mean, fair point. Yeah, I mean, he, he tried it and it didn't work, did it? Yeah. Uh, it's it's around this point that she tells him, I'd forgive you if you're crazy, but you're not, you're weak. Which I think yes. was such a crushing thing to say to Dwight. Like, yeah, it, we've shown, he's been shown to be very kind of fragile. And I guess you could call that weak, but I don't think you can call anyone's response to trauma i don't think that you can judge it at all really you know having right. both your parents brutally murdered as a kid I, I i don't know i don't know how she could really say that to him what what did you yeah. think because that seemed really harsh to me it does it seems like she's taking out some of her her own issues like uh, for the entire life that he has missed in the in-between she's taking it out on him right then uh but it is uh, it's understandable that she'd have some reaction because he's also brought this cleland family to her house yeah well (laughs) and that's true at that point they had just ran back inside and made sure that her kids were okay and so now yes he's brought this danger onto her doorstep so I, i i i guess i can understand why she might be a little bit upset with him so now his sister takes off and we see Dwight basically um, preparing to defend his house like in Home Alone. Yes. <laughs> and he winds up with a pitchfork. 
Like, yeah, yeah, I don't. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. So what? What does he set up here? Not he sets up the jar of coins. I don't. I don't quite remember if he sets up any. No, the jar of coins is that's the later. Second, okay, the second yeah. house. Yeah, but um, yeah. So he sees his Pontiac show up across yes. the street, which is again terrifying to see your own car pull up outside your house and you're not the one driving it right and uh guys get out with weapons and this begins a really cool really tense um home invasion scene where dwight is mm -hmm. basically playing hide and seek with these guys yeah he's like lying down on the floor covering his flashlight at one point that part was scary as they walk past Yes. He has a flashlight, and then like a kid, because I, I think it's because he doesn't want to make the click noise of turning it off. So he's covering it with his fingers, and the blade of light is like leaking through his fingers. And and again, the look on Dwight's Macon's face, unbelievable. Yeah. He looks petrified. Uh, and again, this is, I don't know, I, I feel like, okay, normal Hollywood movie, if it didn't end in the first sequence, this would be the ending. This would be the big finale. There's a home invasion. Dwight prepares to defend his sister's house and kills them with a pitchfork. The end. Right. But instead, Dwight immediately seems to realize that, oh shit, I'm completely over my head. Completely outgunned. I don't even have a gun. So <laughs> I'm going to grab my, my spare keys from my sister's house for the Pontiac that they just drove here, and I'm going to try to escape. And, uh... This is where uh, the guy with the crossbow jumps into the movie. Yes, so apparently two of the Clevelands, um, which is the, the family that Wade was from, were there to get him. Uh, Dwight hits one of them with his car, and the other one has a crossbow that he's like shooting out of the second story window at him, and it's just insane. So Dwight hits the guy with the car, and the guy had a shotgun. The crossbow guy runs out to get Dwight, and then Dwight picks up the shotgun, and now Dwight is chasing crossbow guy. <laughs> it's just this really funny yeah. little moment of, like, the cat, the mouse becomes the cat, and they switch spots, you know, <laughs> and suddenly Dwight's chasing him into the darkness. And this is where there's one really cool shot. They use a blue bug zapper to just give this awesome shot of Dwight holding a shotgun, going through this back alley mm -hmm. behind a house with this bright, bright blue light on his face. Um... This movie plays with light so well. It, it's so beautifully shot, especially for being in the dark. I think Sonnier nails shooting in the dark. with it, it never looks washed out or grayed out to get extra exposure. It's always the right amount of detail, I feel. Uh, it's, it's beautifully mm -hmm. shot. The fact that he directed and was his own cinematographer is really impressive. Yeah, and uh, the fact that he could push that Canon C300 uh, so far with the, the shadow details and the darkness that he gets is, I find that amazing. Like he knew exactly what he was doing. He uh, definitely spent some time with that camera beforehand. So he knew the limitations. So can you talk as a filmmaker about building a relationship with a camera like that? How do you, how do you learn the ins and outs and the tricks of getting a mid to high level camera such as that one to produce professional results. You play with it a lot. 
and I have seen people uh, and been on sets and worked with cameras before that um, if you don't get any time to play with the camera, it doesn't matter how high-end it is, um, you don't know its limitations, and you wind up playing it safe and not kind of pushing those boundaries like he does here to get those really kind of different and beautiful exposures that he gets out of this camera. Uh, you know, I've been lucky enough, I've worked with this camera, kind of the whole Canon uh, cinema series that they released a few years ago, uh, and shot a movie with them. And I love them. Like, it's a fantastic camera, but it is one that I personally took out to, uh, I shot paintball fights with them. I shot at night. I shot uh, in and out, in and out of doors, like all kinds of different scenarios, which I'm guessing that's what he had to do to really like learn this camera so well. Uh, and I've seen people use higher end cameras and come back with worse results. And my suspicion is always that they, it was the first time that they got to put hands on that higher end camera. It was the day that they were shooting. Interesting. Do you think, it doesn't look like there's much lighting set up at all in this movie. Maybe that's just me not noticing it, but it looks like a lot of this movie is shot with natural lighting. Yeah, and that's really one of the things he was pushing for. Um, if anybody wants to look up the sample movie that he shot, the, the camera he test, did a, little, he did a little music video. I, yes, I watched that test. today. It was, it was like just as a music video alone. Like, wow, this looks this yeah. looks excellent. Yes, and that was shot entirely with with ambient light. Um, if you look up Blue Ruin camera test, it's on Vimeo, um, and it's set to the song "I Hope You Die." which is kind of amazing in and of itself. Um, yeah. But it's making, it's, making wandering around some town at night and it's yeah, beautifully like shot. Basically though, in man. his character. And there's some shots that he reused from that camera test in, in here. You'll see as he's like going through the woods, he does the exact same kind of following move um, because he didn't have, uh, from my understanding, he didn't have like a long set of dolly tracks. He had like a five foot slider. And so the camera move that you see is exactly the only camera move that he could, he could have done, but he knew exactly what to get out of it. Interesting. Like what part he wanted to use. Well, that's really cool. It shows just how in a movie like this, it's, it's easy to not notice things. And I think that's a, the sign mm -hmm. of a truly skilled director is when you don't notice all of the tricks that he's putting into it, he or she's putting into it. It just... You just accept it all as reality. Yeah. Kind of the funny thing between this and Blood Simple, uh, the Coens aren't generally known for being very flashy, but there's a few flashy camera moves in Blood Simple. I'm, I'm excited to pick your brain about one or two of those. But before I yeah. pick your brain about that, we have to pick a crossbow bolt out of our leg because oh Dwight God. just got shot in the thigh. Because Dwight was dilly-dallying around trying to get this guy into the trunk and, like, taking his sweet-ass time. And all of a sudden, a bolt comes flying through the air and nails him in the thigh. And it looks so painful. <laughs> mm -hmm. And this sets up um, uh, kind of one of my favorite little sequences that shows how anti-Hollywood action movie this is. And so we start with Dwight needing to remove the crossbow bolt. And so he he eventually winds up 
putting it inside the car door to hold it in place while he uses a hacksaw to cut it off. And my god, Macon is wonderful in this because he's like drooling with pain and his eyes are plucking uh -huh. out and I buy every second of this of this part where he's trying to cut the cross bolt the bolt in half. And that's the next little section where he uh, goes into a pharmacy and gets himself a bunch of supplies like he's going to finish pulling this bolt out. I and love it. Suture himself up. I love it. It's such a it's such when a movie he's... thing. You go out, you get your kit, you get your super glue and your gun and your or your your yes. knife and your sewing kit and and then you splash shit on and it's the movies, you know? Yeah, it's exactly what he does in No Country for Old Men, what Anton Chigurh does at one point. Uh, after he's been shot, like you get a sequence of, of him doing this and um, Macon, he looks like he's in pain. Like you said, he's drooling. He's, his hands are shaking. Like he's trying to open the bottle of alcohol to dump uh, on the wound and his hands are shaking. Like he can barely screw the cap back on. It's so good. It's excellent. So, he, have you ever poured isopropyl alcohol on a wound before? No, I don't think I've, I've been in a situation where I've had to. Uh, I stepped on a razor blade because I was a genius and decided I was going to start shaving in the shower. <laughs> okay. So I knocked a razor onto the floor and then stepped on it <sighs> and got a pretty good slice in my foot, but it was a very clean slice. And so I was like, oh, well, I have this 70% isopropyl. I poured it on my cut. And it was like searing ghost peppers in my foot. It was the most, some of the most intense pain I felt for 10 seconds. I was just oh, like grimacing <laughs> and just like, oh, that was probably really dumb. Cause in my, like, I feel like I probably could have just done soap and water or hydrogen peroxide at most. I did not need to do right. that much isopropyl. And then it's great. After this, he gets, he gets the little, pliers out and he starts trying to yank on it and he has his sewing kit ready and it's not gonna fucking work clearly he's about to pass yeah. out and he walks into the it cuts to him walking into a hospital and he looks like a ghost when he's standing there and he says yes i had an accident and just passed in my leg <laughs> <laughs> and it's so good the the cut from kind of the standard action movie scene of him trying to operate on himself you know it looks like something out of terminator to him stumbling into the ho or into the hospital is once again it's humorous like the juxtaposition is fun yeah i i it's a, it just once again it's a setup to a teardown of completely yeah. um sub subverting your expectations uh and then he uh then he walks out of the hospital, like once he, he comes to, he leaves out of the hospital and he's still wearing the hospital jumper, like the, the paper gown that they give you. Uh, what, and once again, you're like, this is our hero. This is the guy we're following. His ass is hanging out. <laughs> again. As he, as he goes to find his yeah. car. His car, which I completely forgot, still has a guy in the trunk. At this point in the, in the movie, yep. I completely forgot about it because so much other shit had happened. It's been like seven minutes that I forgot that he's had a guy in his trunk now for probably 18 to 24 hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
uh, he goes back to his sister's house and cleans up like the window that the that the Clelands broke uh, and counted all the signs of the break-in. Uh, except for he leaves the pitchfork in the kitchen, uh, which is kind of funny. Like, it seems like he's doing a good job, but even at this, like, he is kind of inept and cannot clean up after himself. Yeah, now every everything that he does kind of works, but is also pretty sloppily executed in this movie. Yes. So yeah, and he, he grabs his old high school yearbook and he grabs the box of stuff that was up in the attic and uh, throws it in the trash and keeps his yearbook. And this is where we go see his buddy Ben. Yeah, he looks up his friend Ben uh, in the yearbook and it shows that he was in the, the ROTC or the, the JROTC. So he goes to Ben's mother's house and there's like a nice little moment uh, where she offers him tea. And he, and I, think I, and I like, I like that he accepts, uh, but again, it, this movie does such a great job of everyone that knew who Dwight was previously. It receives him with such sorrow and pity for him. It, it just, it's really, mm-hmm. really sad and depressing. And you really feel that in this moment where this woman is thinking back on, you know, her, her son's high school friend and just the trauma he's been through and the loneliness and everything. And yeah, that little gesture of, would you like some tea? I think really says a lot about how, you know, how much people care about this guy. And that even though he ran yeah. away, that doesn't mean that people care about him any less. And it gives you this little glimpse into the fact that he could have maybe had a life if he had stayed in the town and stayed a person amongst people rather than kind of running off on his own uh, and, you know, just wallowing in his in his sorrow all the time. Absolutely. Josh, is your video working for you? No, it shows me. Jumping yeah, you're around. jumping around. I'm going to keep the local going, but do you want to try to fix your... Okay. So, uh, yeah, keep your local going, too. Let's see if you can get your video okay. set. Because you look like, what are those What are those little cartoons where you would put your head on it, and then it would move around at four seconds, and it looked like the South Park Canadians? You remember those? For, like from, like, jab? 15 years. Jib jab, yes! You look like a jib jab <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's just <laughs> your shoulders are just kind of spasming back and forth it's very disconcerting like i don't i've been trying to avoid <laughs> eye contact with your avatar as it slowly haunts me it looks like um max headroom has overtaken me somehow you know, i don't know like what max i kind of know what max headroom is but the only thing i know it from is that piracy takeover uh-huh. and you know that tv broadcast one yes. and that video scares the shit out of me it's amazing. If, it's, if I oh had been God. watching... I love that that's a real thing. If I had been watching broadcast TV back then, and that weird Max Headroom thing took over for 40 seconds or whatever, I would have lost my mind. Yes. I would have been calling the cops. I would have been like, what the hell is happening? So next, we we find out from Ben's mom where he lives and where he works. And so Dwight goes to what looks like basically an early homage to Green Room. Which yes. was really exciting it's, for me because it just looks like, oh, I, I miss metal shows. I remember that. Yeah. And so he, 
he's looking for his friend Ben and eventually meets him out in the parking lot. And Ben, again, just like everyone else, just looks at him tragically when Ben realizes who he mm -hmm. is. And uh, so, yeah, they go back to Ben's house and they hang out and Ben wants to reminisce and Dwight's not really in the mood for that. No, he hurries him along because he's got a guy in his trunk. <laughs> Which I still he... am forgetting about because this guy has been still very quiet. No, has the guy been banging around? He There's a couple scenes of him banging around in there. There's one where he's yelling, let me out. And Dwight says, not till I have a gun. And the guy goes, shit, I could get you that, a gun. That part cracked me up. Because the, the way the guy said, oh, I can get you a gun. <laughs> like, yeah. Is that all you need? Like, all right. Like, <laughs> that really made me laugh. Um, and so he gets a gun. Uh, basically, Ben gives him a whole rundown on guns. You're going to be shooting from close. You may be shooting from far away. How into this are you? Oh shit, you're you're really really into it. Right. And so Ben uh, gives him some kind of single shot rifle and uh, sends Dwight on his way. And so I think Dwight Dwight doesn't actually leave Ben's property; he just drives down the road a bit, and then he pops open the trunk and throws the guy a gallon of water and holds him mm -hmm. at gunpoint about fifteen feet away. And I I loved this actor who's in the trunk in this scene. Oh, yeah. I thought he did s such a great job, and he was menacing, but also really fun in a weird way. I, I, I really yeah. enjoyed his performance. And it just, it plays, like, this dude's been in this car for, like, a day and a half now in this trunk. Um, and his leg's broken from when Dwight hit him with the car. Uh, or at least he claims that it is. Uh, and the little back and forth they have is this guy keeps getting the upper hand on Dwight, who has the gun. Yeah. <laughs> like, as the person with the gun, he should be setting the rules, but he's not. And he tells him, you're the one with the uh, gun, you tell the truth. Yes. Which I thought was a, a great and little line. They, uh, during conversation, the man, like, he starts saying things that make white doubt if wade actually killed his parents and then you get uh through their back and forth you find out that dwight's father had an affair with wade's mother and wade's father was the one who actually killed dwight's parents that he was gunning for the guy who cuckolded him and wound up killing his his mother as well on accident and that wade took the fall uh because his father had cancer it's really and it's really ironic that uh an act of love when i don't know if cheating is love but he says later my my dad loved your mom and now we're all dead because of it right and yeah. um so just the irony that an act of love causes massive amounts of death yes um yeah so another part that cracked me up is uh he tells the guy in the trunk that, oh, we're in Kentucky. I, I don't know what state they're in at this point, but the guy looks around and says, have you ever been to Kentucky? Because right. <laughs> It's so true, because I, I, I have no idea what Kentucky looks like. I've, I've watched Justified, and so maybe that gives me some yeah. idea, but 
I just that really cracked me up that once again Dwight's just getting called on his bullshit because he's not very good at this. Yep. And he gives the man a cell phone and tells him to call his family. And basically, Dwight is willing to give himself up to the cops for what he's done if the other family will not get revenge against his sister and her kids. That's what he wants out of this, is that they stop coming after his family. Which, in this whole time, you don't actually know if they want to attack the sister anyway. There's always this question Dwight is asking this guy of, were you coming after me or my sister? Like, who were you trying to hurt? Uh, and I, I think it's naive for Dwight to think that question matters. I, yeah. Either way, it's Either way, it's your family is in danger. You know, they're at your sister's house yep. with guns. So, um, yeah, and this is where, uh, how does, remind me how the guy gets Dwight to close the gap? Because Dwight's been pretty good about holding this 10 to 15 foot distance. Yeah. He tells, uh, he says that his sister on the phone wants to talk to Dwight on the phone. And so he's going to hand the, the classic phone. ruse. Yes. And uh, Dwight walks up to the guy, and as soon as he is within pouncing distance, the guy pounces on him and takes the gun away from him and knocks him down. Beats, yeah, instant, instantly like, beats the shit out of him. Yeah. And I, don't, I can't quite tell if his leg is broken or not. It doesn't quite look to be. No, he, he says, he almost falls over, then he says, oh, my leg's asleep. <laughs> uh, which might mean that, they, that it wasn't broken to begin with. Yeah. Um, but Dwight says, uh, okay, I'll die. I deserve it. Uh, just stop going after my sister. Like, as the guy ha is holding him at gunpoint. Yeah. And this is where the movie's about to end. And it's a sad, sad ending. But then all of a sudden, you just hear a zip. And the guy looks her over to his right. And then suddenly, boom, his head explodes. And one yes. of the most visceral gunshots I've ever seen. Yeah, and it's so quick, the way I that it think, happens. You tell me, but I think in the edit, on the moment of impact, it looks like they removed maybe two frames or so, so that you get this jarring mm -hmm. neck snapping, where all of a sudden his entire head just instantly snaps to the left as this bullet goes yeah. through his jaw and obliterates him. It's stunning. Yep. And it's exactly again, it man. It's the complete anti-Hollywood cuz in a Hollywood action movie normally bullets have no impact. And in this this shot yeah. right here, this literal shot, it you can feel the weight of that bullet and what it does. It's terrifying. Absolutely right. terrifying. So, Ben steps out of the bushes and you realize that Ben has kind of had his eye on him this whole time since they're still on Ben's land. Uh, and he says, I had to wait till I thought he was going to pull the trigger to make it legal. Yeah. At least yeah. for me. Which, uh, again, a preposterous line, especially there's no one out there to witness it. He knows what this guy's right. like. Just ridiculous. Uh, and so he's, he says to Dwight, wipe, wipe that blood off your face. He's probably got hepatitis. Which, again, that's <laughs> really funny. <laughs> and Ben... Um, Ben basically says, uh, all right, we need to get you better with a gun because you, you shot once at him in the trunk and you missed. And so 
Mm-hmm. He takes him back, and he, you see a little bottle shooting montage, and he gives Dwight what looks like a really cool, it's like a revolver shotgun kind of thing. Yeah, it's pretty looks, wild. Yeah, it looks wild. I've never quite seen anything like it. And uh, Ben tells him, listen, I know this is personal. No speeches. You point the gun, you shoot the gun. And as we just learned, mm-hmm. you know, Dwight just made this mistake. And um, Dwight says, have you ever killed anyone before? And Ben says... Two people uh, on purpose. Or what does he say? Right. Something like that. It's a really weird line. It's two, two on what purpose. What does that mean? So in Ben's backstory, his mother mentioned that he had been deployed overseas. She uh, says Japan, correct? And yes, which, you know, you get the, I guess you get the idea that he wasn't there the whole time or that's not where he was or something. Because it seems like he, you know, undertook some military action that resulted in people's deaths. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to have many qualms about killing uh, this guy. No, not at all. Uh, This does not seem to have faced him in the least. It seems like... It seems like this is something that he's either gone through before or he's been prepared for it for so long that he was just ready to do it. But... Either way, it tells me a lot about Ben, which worries me. Ben Ben is a scary guy. Like, he's nice to Dwight, yes. but Ben terrifies me. He's He's got a locker full of guns. He's got a whole lot of knowledge. He lives on his own in the middle of 16 acres. Uh, he kind of could be a survivalist, I'm thinking. Yeah, for sure. And so Macon's about to take off, and... Uh, he tells Ben, uh, Ben mentions that there's a Polaroid of them with the stripper from back in their past. And Dwight tells him to, to destroy it. Basically the last thing he tells him, which I think it's, it's really sad. We see Dwight kind of erasing his history throughout the second half of this movie. And whether it's in his sister's house as mm-hmm. he cleans it up and throws his stuff away. Or now with Ben asking him to burn that photo. Uh, and giving him the yearbook. It seems like Dwight, Dwight's making his final pre- uh, preparations, basically. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, this is the shot. Yeah, this is where I think Macon is driving down the road. And then he gives that awesome puking. Some of the best movie puking I've seen. <laughs> well, and this is another, like, just way things don't work out in this movie. Because... There's shots of him driving, and then he's at this, like, greasy spoon diner eating a steak dinner, like a shitty steak dinner with a glass of wine. And you you get the idea that he knows this is his last meal. This is his final moments, uh, the last thing he's going to ingest. And then the next shot is him peeking it up alongside the (laughs) road. That's that's a really good... I I forgot that connection, that it was clearly... He was... He was going to splurge. And even if it was like some shitty yes. diner with some glass of red wine that looked like Kool-Aid, that was still, that was yep. like the big, the big meal for him. And then, yeah, immediately pukes it up. <laughs> and uh, so this is where I believe we're now at the point where Macon drives to the, the Cleveland residence. Yeah, he drives to, I don't know if it's their house or their, their hunting cabin or what. But he drives into the woods and hides his car under some branches. Uh, 
and he leaves the key with the, the necklace on it in the ignition when he he's leaves. learning yep <laughs> and uh yeah and so this is uh one of my favorite shots macon now has the the shotgun and he goes through the house and it's this long shot of him clearing the house and you get a feel for the entire mm -hmm. layout and geometry of the house but there's such tension as you follow him in this dark house room to room clearing it and then realizing that nobody's there but it's a real moment of right. tension and now this is an interesting part that i don't think you would normally see but we spend a good two minutes now with macon just finding all of the guns stored in the house yeah and then destroying all of them yeah he like goes to the obvious places there's a gun cabinet and there's a gun rack but then he's like he's smart enough to check under the beds and under the pillows for any stashed revolvers that they might have hidden um and he ties them all up in a in a sheet and chucks them into a pond i love this part because it's at this point that i think that as he's walking back he sees the gravesite for the the patriarch of the family who killed his parents and we see him go inside mm -hmm. and drink two giant glasses of water and then we hard cut to him pissing on the grave <laughs> <laughs> um and then another just another little diversion that this movie does the guy left a voicemail he was never talking to his sister so once again right. this movie just right when you think it's going left it zigs to the right and it just does that over and over again in these little tiny ways but I'm constantly left off balance. Yes. Like in the best oh, way. I love it. Love it. Yeah. And uh, so this is, yeah, the, the family arrives at this point. Well, he does something. He digs a grave for the guy. In oh, I was trunk. curious about what you and thought about this. It's, I mean, I think that Dwight feels sorry for the situation like for what's happening he doesn't want it to be happening anymore yeah and that's kind of like his way of uh his penance which in both these movies people dig graves by hand and i have to say i've had to dig a grave for a movie before and we hired a backhoe and it took the backhoe a long time to do it there's no way you can dig a grave by hand in like a couple hours oh i see with a shovel by by hand with a shovel okay. yes uh, i thought you meant he just yeah. clawed into the ground with his fingers i was like holy <laughs> shit i didn't i didn't catch that <laughs> um yeah i i don't know if it's a penance or if it's because he even leaves he even takes the time to get white paint out and a paintbrush and paint a little headstone that says teddy on it it's, it's a real weird tender moment Especially after following, <laughs> when he's still on Ben's property, he they load the body and they look at skull fragments or whatever's on the ground. And Dwight goes, uh, "What do we do about those?" And Ben goes, "Oh, coyotes will get them." Right. <laughs> and uh, so Dwight, Dwight's hiding in the house with his shotgun, and he's, and then the the Cleveland show up, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's funny because he does all this, um, like he sets the jar of, of coins on its edge so that if they open the door, it'll fall over. He kind of built, built a little barricade out of furniture. Uh, and then none of that stuff stuff winds up. No, none of it. None of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's so much more simple. It's just the, 
the two sisters and the last remaining brother run into the house in a, in a storm and they check the voicemail. And we see that Dwight previously left a voicemail on the message machine, basically saying, it's over, that's two of mine for two of yours, we can end this thing right now. And he's standing around the corner listening to them, listen to this voicemail. And then he hears them respond, that's why we're going to Virginia to kill your fucking sister or whatever. And yeah. then this movie ends in an absolute tidal wave of violence. Josh, you want to take it? Yes. So he he draws down on the family from behind them at first and then drops the gun like as they're listening to the message. And then the brother says that. He says, we're going to, I think it's Pittsburgh. We're going to Pittsburgh to find your sister. And that's when he brings the gun back up and just shoots the guy. Uh, and he shoots that guy a couple times. He shoots the one sister in the arm, it looks like. Uh, and when you cut to their side of the room, you see outside in the kind of the entryway still, but out of Dwight's field of view, uh, the teen that was in the car, in the limo, towards the beginning of the movie. is just standing there like, holy fuck, what's, what's going on? Yeah. So the kid grabs a shotgun. And just like we did with Dwight, as he's listening to this really intense standoff between Dwight and the two sisters, um, the kid sneaking through the house with a shotgun and he flanks Dwight and he puts one basically through the right side of his belly, shoots Dwight and then kind of looks shocked and like, I don't know what to do now. And the sisters scream, kill him, kill him. And then right before he can, Dwight smacks the shotgun up and he fires the shot into the ceiling. And Dwight looks at this kid just helplessly. Like, this kid should not be involved in this. This kid had nothing to do yes. with this, you know? Like, it's a real sad moment for him. And he basically just tells the kid, uh, I, I think you did your job. I think you've killed me. Get the hell out of here. Yeah. He tells him to go get in. My car is down the road. Like, go get in my car and take off. Uh, and this is, this is where then, we find out that uh, Dwight's there. Dwight's dad impregnated their mom, and that that kid yes. is actually Dwight's half brother. Yes. And so just it's, it's Which, such a Hatfield and McCoy's moment of, so now we're actually were two connected families that have shared blood and we're still pursuing this. Yep. It's just uh, this movie. It just, it's the futility of, in the cycle of violence and just that horrible endless spiral that an eye for an eye can create. It's such a, like it's twisting the knife at this point And it's so, I think it's done so well. well. And so it's a detail that didn't have to happen, but it, it, the standoff ends when the last place Dwight didn't check, the lazy boy recliner, she kicks that thing up and there's some kind of submachine gun under it. And we hard cut outside as the kid's running away and we just hear a hail of bullets as everyone dies. Yeah, you just see some flashes of gunfire from the kid's POV outside. And then back inside the house, both women are dead. Uh, Dwight is laying there dying 
and like blood is burbling from his lips. He just keeps repeating that the keys are in the car. The keys are in the car. Which, what did you, what did you make of that final line there? I, it was almost like a prayer for the, the teen kid to get out of there. Like, and I see it as get away from this situation, get away from this whole thing. Like, don't be a part of this. Don't, don't do what we have done. Basically. Yeah. I, I really like that take because I, I kind of just had it like, thank God the keys are in the car that this kid, when he gets to the car, he won't have to come back here or that, you know, um, mm-hmm. but I really like that, that in the broader sense, get away from everything. But if I'm not yeah. mistaken, that kid and Dwight's sister are the only two remaining. Yeah, I so, think so. Um, yeah, and then, and then we end with a nice little song. Is this the, the I Regret Nothing, I Have No Regrets song? Yeah, the song, the song is called <laughs> No Regrets, <laughs> which is pretty and great. It's like an old doo-wop song. It's, it's, a, pretty, it's a pretty great yep. way to finish it on... A little bit of comedy and a pretty serious note at the same time. Yeah. Which, the threads between these that I noticed, there's a bug zapper shot in both movies, which I can't tell you another movie that I've seen a bug zapper in. Except There's got to be one in Gone Fishing with Joe Pesci and, <laughs> and uh, Danny Glover. <laughs> no, there's got to yeah. be. Maybe... Uh, uh, the Great Outdoors. There might be one in that. Oh, as well. yeah. Speaking of the Great Outdoors, I yeah, I need to watch that again. Big Bear, Big Bear, chase me. There's also a great <laughs> shot in that where you can see Dan Aykroyd giving the cast like a three, two, one, and then everyone runs out of the room screaming during the bear scene. It's really great in the background. Yeah, oh, you really? can see him doing a silent countdown, and then everyone runs out of the room. It's it's just a funny little moment. Uh, I miss John Candy. And, uh, oh, and there's, like, old doo-wop sounding songs in both of them. Oh, yeah, good call. In both these movies today. Yep. All right, well, do you have anything else for Jeremy Saulnier and company? I This is, this is about, for me, this is as good as an action movie can get, basically. I, I think this is, this is as, this is top tier. I don't, I can't think of any other movies that I would say vastly you know, vastly better than this in this genre. No, I think just a couple of details. Um, ben is played by Devin Ratteray. Ratteray? Rut- uh, I have a problem with my R's. Ratteray. <laughs> uh, but who was, um, played the big brother Buzz in the what? films. What? Yes. No. Yep. Whoa! <laughs> Holy shit! You just blew my mind. Wow! <laughs> wow! See, you knew that Buzz was going to grow up to be a sociopath. You just had a feeling. It all makes sense. If only there was a tarantula somewhere in Ben's house, it really would have connected all the dots. All right. So Josh, up next we have Blood Simple. Which is a 1984 movie directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen with 
they both kind of share directing and writing credits, even if it's not quite released that way. It's just, that's how the Coen brothers do it. So, um, yeah, this movie, oh God, we have to do that over. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say about this movie. I don't know. I don't know. It's bloody, but it's simple. Yes. Um, Nah, I fine. It was good. <laughs> it's fine. I just lost. <laughs> I lost all motive, not motivation, momentum. Halfway through, where it's like, oh no, I started this sentence and I don't know where it's going. <laughs> no, it's it fine. Again. It might be better to just leave all that in. <laughs> <laughs> just show people how <laughs> shitty I am at this. <laughs> I was fine for a little bit. Now, Josh, can I just say that when you see the Janus Films logo? you know you're in for high art. Sim yes, similarly so to how you and I talked about when you watched that Criterion logo, it just, you feel better about yourself. I feel that way about Janus films yep. too, especially how it's, it's kind of wobbly and shaky because it just was, I don't know how they did title cards back then, but you can see the, the jitter from the different frames displaying it. And yeah. I love that so much. So I really feel good about myself when a movie starts that way. I'm going to get some exactly. art. And so this movie opens up in, uh, inside the backseat of a car, right? During a heavy rainstorm. That was my oh, first it has some Texas shots. That's right. With shots of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, this movie brings up again and again, either through character dialogue or um, through radio broadcast, the idea of the Russian people, everyone works together to for one cause, and mm -hmm. in Texas, everyone's out for themselves. Yep. Yeah, you're and this gets hammered again and again, and I'm sure people from Texas love that. <laughs> you damn right, you're alone <laughs> when you're out here. Oh, and this this movie also uses the phrase "shit kickers," which I just recently learned that phrase. Uh, to describe yeah, describe people from that area. So we get the voiceover, and then you open up in the backseat of the car. Uh, and in the front are Frances McDormand, who's playing Abby, and uh, John Getz, uh, who's playing Ray. Uh, and the whole scene is basically shot, is one shot up until there's a cut a couple minutes into it. But once again, this movie is so tightly constructed I didn't realize until a rewatch of it that Abby's first line, which is, he gave me a little pearl handled 38 for our first anniversary. Figured out a better leaf before I used it on him. Wow. Like, I, di I didn't catch that. Yeah, that little pearl handled This 38. dialogue is yeah, pretty, it's, pretty roughly, not roughly mixed. It's it's a bit muddy in the audio mix um, because there's, yeah. there's this massive rainstorm happening, but then there's also the score. And one thing I love is the score, the beat of the score is set to the windshield wipers. And so there's just this... Yep. And that's, it's score, but it's also diegetic with the sound. Uh, really cool stuff. And one thing I noticed about this movie again and again, we get this rhythmic beat. Uh, there, just some kind of some kind of rhythm, whether it's a heartbeat, a dog's tail whapping, the, the soundtrack... There's there's just a lot of that going on throughout this. A lot of ceiling mm -hmm. fans. You get like a woof, woof, woof as you as you get shots of ceiling fans, um, and it's used 
as people kind of uh, get phone calls and they figure out who's on the other end because they hear this, the whooshing of that sound. So once, yeah, like you were saying, it plays like diegetically, but also as part of the score or the sound. It's interesting. It's different. I can't quite, I can't quite think of another time. I mean, I know last week with um, Annihilation, I was kind of confused at the ending if the sounds that we were hearing were diegetic or not. The sounds that were coming out of that mm-hmm. creature, um, but I can't think of too too many other times that I've experienced this kind of blurring of the line between that, where you can't quite tell um, where the sound is coming from. Yeah, uh, Tarantino will do it sometimes. <clears throat> There's another one that I watched recently. I don't remember what it was, but that um, a song started as soundtrack and then goes diegetic and gets turned off at a car radio, which I thought was a, was oh, a what? cool I... way to do it. Oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've seen that too. Yeah, you get into the car and yeah. Yeah. What was that? Yeah. I don't know. But that's gonna bug so me. these people are talking and then uh, they see that they're being followed uh, in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. on this dark highway, and so they pull over, and the car pulls over behind them and is just kind of sitting there watching them. It's kind of an eerie moment, except it's not eerie at all because it's a Volkswagen Beetle, which is the least scary car in existence. Yep. So I was just thinking, like, if that had been, especially knowing that we're in Texas, if that had been some big old diesel beat-to-shit truck, I feel like that would have been so much more intimidating, mm-hmm. but also on the nose. Of like, oh, yeah, it's Texas. You get shit-pickers yes. driving big trucks out there or whatever. But the fact that it's a Beetle is a really strange choice. And it's beat-to-shit, it's beat too. It's in terrible condition. And the car that they're driving in? Uh, is actually Sam Raimi's car. Oh, really? Yes. It's the same car that shows up in Evil Dead and Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. Uh, it's in every one of Sam Raimi's movies. He figures out a way to Was... work it in. When Sam Raimi filmed Evil Dead, did he use his personal car? Yes. Ah, I didn't know that. Yes. That... I, I, I know that car is iconic, but I I didn't recognize it in this movie because I'm I don't have an eye for cars at all. Yeah, it's a Oldmobile 88. Um, and he calls it the classic. Uh, and it's just one of those things. There's also a very Sam Raimi moment that happens in the movie. It's entirely because <laughs> Sam Raimi and the Coen brothers and Francis McDormand were all friends. And at one point all lived together uh, as they were. Do you want to talk about the Raimi moment now or get to it later? Uh, I'll do it when we get to it. Because I don't know, I'm I'm excited. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so they uh, at this point they get to a hotel, if I'm not mistaken, and mm-hmm. oh, Cohen Brothers, I love you guys because you guys know how uncomfortable I get with sex scenes in movies, and this is a mercifully quick one. This is yes. like three seconds. You see some sheets thrashing around, and then a hard cut morning. We're done. I was like, oh, thank God, we don't have to watch yep. that. Bless you. Apparently early on when Frances McDormand was first uh, approached them about taking on this role, she read that, you know, there's a couple sex scenes in it. And she's like, am I going to have to be topless? Am I going to have to be naked? What's what's the deal with this? Uh, and they assured her that, no, we're not selling this movie on sex. We're selling it on violence. Oh, cool. Which I love as a response. We watched Body Devil with De Palma recently and that. Like, it's so over the top that the sex doesn't even bug me because it's just funny. <laughs> there's, there's so many boobs that you just have to accept it. Yes. But yeah, it, it, you worry, especially back 
back in the 70s and 80s about the treatment of actors and actresses during these sex scenes and just having, you know, just being exploited on camera. So I, I respect the Coens a lot for making that choice. Um, Frances yeah. McDormand is beautiful in this movie. I, I, I've only oh, yeah. seen her in her later career, I guess. I don't, I couldn't really tell you off the top of my head. I could only tell you two or three McDormand movies I've seen, honestly. And I think they're all when she's 50 or over. Um, I could barely recognize her at first, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Multiple Academy Award winning yeah. Frances McDormand. She's good in this too. It's not. It, yeah. it kind of loses focus on her for a while, but it comes back around to her by the end. Um, yeah. And so now we're going to go, I believe the next thing we're going to go to is, oh no, they get a phone call. They get a phone call yes. and uh, yeah, Ray answers it. And what does the guy say? Are you, are you enjoying yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Are you having yeah. a good time? Something like that. And Ray doesn't say anything and, or Ray's, I don't remember what Ray says, and the phone call gets disconnected, and he hangs up. And Ray says, who was it? Oh, it was your husband. And this yeah. is where we get introduced so, to the star of this movie, Dan Hedaya. Oh, my <laughs> God. Dan, I've only seen Dan Hedaya in limited roles or, like, um, Night at the Roxbury, stuff like that, where he's getting, like, maybe 10 okay. minutes screen time or something. You know, we watched Alien Resurrection, mm -hmm. or... Resurrection he's in? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in yeah. that one, he's five, seven minutes, maybe, at the most of screen time. So this is my first full-on Hedaya, and man, it was fun. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good. He's so greasy, and... Just he plays such a good. He's slime so ball. good, and uh, so right off the bat, we see on his desk. I love this little detail. He has a glass of milk and a package of Alka Seltzers right next to it, <laughs> and I feel like those two <laughs> things together, one are like fighting each other, and then two, could you imagine drinking carbonated yeah. milk, like bubbly milk that you drop it? That sounds disgusting. I swear, it's like twenty <laughs> years ago. There was a news article that said that carbonated milk was coming out and it was going to be a thing. <laughs> I, was, I was mortified. Well, have you ever had an egg cream drink? Yes, but those are amazing and I don't understand why. Wait, are you talking about <laughs> when a bartender like uses an egg white in a drink? No, an egg cream is the name of a drink that uh, is made up of milk, carbonated water, oh, and no, chocolate I don't want, No, 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 no. I, did, I don't even want to know that exists. <laughs> oh, God. It, it's, it's like a bubbly oh, Is that good? I like it. I will often get one at a pharmacy burger here in town. Pharmacy burger? Well, yeah, because then you can get medicine for... Oh, okay, God, that, that joke's going nowhere. Edit. <laughs> Edit. I like it. <laughs> no, let's stay in it a little bit. <laughs> so, we, uh... Um, we're also introduced, I don't have his name on me, um, but we are introduced to M. Emmett Walsh as the, the PI, and this is a, yes, yeah, Visser. and this is a guy that I've seen in a bunch of movies, but I cannot place him in any one singular role. And so again, a, another character mm -hmm. actor who finally gets 
to shine. And I thought he was great too. I, he and he and Hadaya going back and forth is really, really good. Their little um, back and forth about, uh, you know, they used to cut the heads off the messenger that brought the yeah. bad news. I, I love that because the way Hadaya looks, Hadaya has this brooding intensity where the whole time you can't tell if he's just a sleazy bar owner or if he's actually a violent man. Right. And so in that scene right there, I wasn't, ah, I wasn't sure if he was going to kill this P.I. just just because he's brooding Dan Hedaya. And uh, so instead he pays him and says something about, I don't remember why Hedaya threatens him, but he threatens to, I'll, I'll come out and find the rock under your own and cut your head off or something like that. I don't remember. Well, because he said the thing about they used to cut the heads yeah. off the messengers. Uh, and then uh, Visser says, you know, well, that doesn't make much sense. And he said, well, it doesn't have to make sense. It makes him feel better. And then at the end of it, he says, I'll find you. Don't come around here. If I need you, I know what rock to look under. And Visser says, uh, something about you can chop my head off. I can always yeah. run well, around. No, he says, it. crawl around. Did you know, did you know that crawl a cockroach around. can live without a head for a week? I, I didn't know that. And I don't but, need to know that. I wish no, that's that I didn't true. know that. Carl Pilkington taught me that. They die of, uh, <sighs> they die of dehydration. Okay. Because they can't take in water at that point. That makes sense, but it's horrifying. Yeah, interesting fact. You know, listeners of Nashville CA, I want you to walk away with one piece of information or knowledge. And it's mostly cockroach related. Well, yeah, we, we work with what we know. <laughs> uh, we have a cinematography alert. We have a dog in this movie, and it's exciting. Yes. And it's a good dog. He is a good dog. He's a good dog. And um, so I have. there's a lot coming up here. The first thing that made me almost stop the movie and run out to Kinko's to get one frame of this movie printed and enlarged poster size and put up in my house, or maybe just put up around town, is the photo of Dan Hedaya in a swimsuit. <laughs> it looks, yes. It looks like that that sasquatch photo that somebody took this like super blur my god i've never seen hair on a man like that i love the the detail when they're showing the wall of pictures that the dog's picture is above his wife's <laughs> the dog has its own framed portrait yes. it's not even like a photo of dan hadaya and the dog it's just the dog <laughs> in a yes. gold framed photo <laughs> um dude do they just burn garbage in Texas? I don't know. that. Because uh, the... Dan Hedaya has an incinerator behind his bar that seemingly has an infinite flame that's constantly going, and they just mm -hmm. go out at the end of shift and throw all of their trash in the... I, I don't know. I've never seen that before. <laughs> I've never heard of burning trash. No, and especially not just like some random backwater bar having a like industrial looking incinerator. It, honestly, it looks like somebody like struck a gas leak and then just threw a dumpster on top of it and <laughs> lit it on fire. And it's just going to be like a permanently on fire thing for the rest of eternity. When we were at the bar, the song, the same old song by the Four Tops is played on the jukebox, which... Is that the song Maurice plays? Yes. Maurice is a giant. Yes. Oh my God, that man is large. <laughs> He's uh, yeah, I, I liked that scene where he puts that on. It, he turns off whatever country. He takes the guy's quarter from him over by the jukebox, and instead of putting on a country song, puts on 
um, kind of a Motown doo-wop style. Yep. And then I love that the bartender to get in and out of the bar has to step over the bar right. to get in and out of it. <laughs> Somewhere in here we find out basically that Ray uh, and Maurice are the bartenders at the bar that Marty owns, that Dan Hedaya's character owns. Yeah, and Ray's been gone for a while. Maurice is kind of covering for him. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, my next note here is that um, Marty calls and you hear that woom, 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 woom rhythm again that seems to kind of be associated with him. Yes. Uh, and um, they, they go back, at this point they go back to um, to Ray's house, correct? Yeah, well they're going to, Ray is going to drop Abby off at his place and then he wants to go talk to Marty. Uh, and this is where you get the confrontation when they're on the back steps and there's a bug zapper in the frame on Marty's half. Uh, and in the background, there the people are tossing stuff in the incinerator. Yeah. The, um, Marty tells Ray that he can't trust Abby. Like, basically, I know you guys are fooling around with each other. Uh, and if it wasn't you, it'd be somebody else. So when she looks at you and says, I ain't done nothing funny, uh, you know, you can't trust her. Yeah, basically. He's telling Ray, you're next, basically. Yes. Uh, yeah, he, you know... <laughs> He seems surprisingly pleasant to Ray, a man who literally s- stole his wife mm-hmm. and, like, has run away with her. Uh, the fact that he even talks to Ray without straight up threatening him, uh, he won't even fire him. Right. So this this part threw me because, like, okay, maybe Hedaya is not as sadistic as he's been presented so far in this movie. Maybe he is a little bit more controlled than what I previously thought, you know? Ray says that he wants his... That he quits then if, if Marty's not going to fire him. And he wants his last two weeks pay. And Marty's like, no, you don't get that. You can <laughs> you can have Abby, but you can't have your last two weeks pay. As he says, she's an expensive piece of ass. Yes. Which is a horrible thing to say, basically, that your two weeks pay have bought you this woman. Yeah. But uh, I guess that's how Hadaya looks at it. It's a trade at this point. Yeah. Not the coolest thing, but whatever. <laughs> so now Ray goes back to his house after his confrontation with Hadaya, right? Yeah. And this is where one of those mind-blowing camera tricks happens. And I want I really want to get your insight, because I don't know how they did this next one. Okay. It's that... It's that exterior, well, it's an interior shot, and Francis McDormand lies down, and then it transitions instantly from uh, nighttime to daytime. Oh, yes. When she lies on but it didn't. Bed. It's not like it was a time lapse. It, it looked like it was a dissolve or something, but it, it looked more than a dissolve. I, I really couldn't quite figure it out. I didn't go back and rewatch it. It's, and I think what they did, they do the exact same trick in Shaun of the Dead. Um, where they leave the camera in one place, except for here they actually had to leave it there until the next day. Like, they had to shoot that at night and then probably leave the camera in the same setup until the next day and just hit record. Yeah, and then, yeah, it must have just been in the edit, the way that they dissolved between the shots or something. Yeah. Um, Something, it was really cool, though. It was very kind of dreamlike. And um, this is where, um, what's, uh, her name is Abby. Yeah. Um, This is where Abby wakes up real early and uh, she hears something out by the door, I think. And she goes to get something, uh, to get her compact out of her 
out of her purse that's out by the door, uh, and she checks her makeup in it, and then she sees their dog. She sees Marty's dog, Opal, on the other end of the room. She hears him breathing. This is when suddenly Marty grabs her from behind and drags her outside. And this, yeah, is, and this is where it's like, okay, no, Hadaya is scary after all. Yes, and, and this uh, is the same Raimi shot. Is the camera zooms across the the lawn and up into their faces, and it's it, uh, yeah, yeah, I okay, and it's the exact yeah. same trick. Because it's gets. like right as it's like right around the time that she breaks his finger, yep. right? It's that that run. It looks like not quite a steady cam. It looks like they put it on a piece of lumber or something like Raimi did, but. Yep. Um, yeah, okay, I totally see that. And so, yeah, Francis McDormand breaks his finger, kicks him in the balls, and Hadaya vomits uh-huh. in, like, four seconds after getting kicked in the nuts. <laughs> and can I just say, his vomiting, not nearly as good as Macon Blair's. No, it was clear that he had just had a mouthful of something and spit it back out. It's Come not- on, Dan Hadaya. No, Dan Hadaya, step up your puke game, please. <laughs> And then we get the the best moment of this entire movie. The dog jumps into the car window. And I thought that was really cool. (laughs) Good cinematography. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and now Hadaya, I don't... This is the next scene he meets up with his private investigator again? Yeah, out kind of out on this cliff overlooking the river. Yeah, I love it. Some young, uh, young, attractive girl is over talking to the private investigator. And he goes... <laughs> Some hippie girl thought I was rolling up a a joint as just a cigarette or something. Yeah. <laughs> she must have thought I was a swinger, he says. <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, I don't think she thought you were a swinger or that she wanted you to be a swinger. <laughs> but they get in the car, and this is one of those great moments where man, the the heat and the shadows in this movie are great. The lighting, mm-hmm. but then the fact that the actors are constantly sweaty and you just feel that oppressive Texas heat that's seeping into everything. And yes. especially for Hadaya, Hadaya just looks miserable. Like in every scene, he just looks like he's unbearably hot and cranky and exhausted. And M. Emmett Walsh is, so we realize that it's his Volkswagen. That's the car that they're in. It was his Volkswagen that was uh, trailing the couple at the beginning. Uh, and, his Volkswagen is beat to shit, but it w- was originally yellow, and he's wearing a yellow suit at all times, and like a kind of a yellow hat as well, which is just, he's ridiculous looking. It's like this polyester yellow suit, and it's just an oversized man sweating into it constantly. Yeah, his outfit looks like what you would put a sketch comedy character in. Yes. Who's playing like an old timey Southern private investigator. Like, uh, it, it's preposterous. It, it's so on the nose for like that stereotype of kind of East Texas, um, yeah. that people have, but he pulls it off. And it, this guy is great because you can tell he doesn't seem to take anything very seriously. Nothing really seems to phase him, but he's, he's pretty, heinous man as far as the how cold-blooded he is oh yeah so this is the scene where marty who's now got a splint on his finger uh tells visser that he wants him to kill abby and ray they're having this kind of combative back and forth once again and then 
Visser gets real quiet and considers it. And then he tells Marty to go fishing, get out of town, and he'll take care of it. Marty seems to worry about finding the money for it. Which, $10,000 for both of them. Doesn't seem like enough money to do a double murder for me. I know it was in the 80s, but still. <laughs> I, I believe at this point we cut to the bar because this is a, the scariest part of this movie is we just see a woman's legs and she's standing on the bar and she's wearing boots and then she goes over and stands on those little, it looks like one of those little plastic boxes that has cherries and lemon wedges and lime wedges in it. Yeah. She's standing on it, dancing on the bar and I can see this thing flexing and I, the, the worry wart in me is just terrified. Like, do you know how dangerous that is dancing <laughs> on a bar like that? You're gonna slip, you're gonna break your neck. Please get down, ma'am, please be safe. Don't stand on flimsy plastic boxes with boots on, please. <laughs> that happens a little bit later, but that little, uh, it's only, there's only like two shots in that bar. It took me forever to realize that it's a different bar that they're at. That was a different bar? Yeah. I didn't realize until probably this time watching it that it's a strip club that they're in. Because you get the announcer in the background saying like, Gentlemen, give it up for so-and-so. She's a registered nurse from, from El Paso. Oh, that's, that's a good point, yeah, because Hadaya's bar was not a strip club, was it? Yeah. It's just... Yeah, this is my first time seeing this movie, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but... Yeah. So it was, I was really glad you turned me on to it. I really liked it. Cool. So... Um, uh, after this, I believe my next note is that Dan Hadaya is anal. Yeah, the little conversation that Abby and Ray have. <laughs> yeah, they have a very important conversation, and it seems like it was like, it was like at that time maybe Freud and Freudian psychology was just like getting really big or something, and mm -hmm. so they're gonna talk about. Dan Hadaya told me that she's anal, and she like points at her head. It's a really weird moment. Or what is this? Yeah, <laughs> and you get her saying that he sent her to a psychiatrist once to try to get her to calm down she has too much personality yeah and she says and the psychiatrist said i was the most healthy person he's ever seen or said no psychiatrist has ever told someone right. you're the healthiest person i've ever seen you have no problems yep i don't know francis mcdormand is so sweet and charming in the role and does such a good job of towing the line between seeming like a femme fatale and seeming like someone who is completely oblivious to everything that's happening you know, and that's kind of the way that yeah, it she, needs to be played for, for Ray to go down the path he does. Well, it's great because, especially as this movie progresses, the the whodunit gets more and more mixed up, and we kind of rely on on people's misunderstandings. Mm -hmm. And so I think Francis does such a great job, especially at the end, of utter confusion at this scenario that she's somewhat responsible for but in the end not really you know it's right. much more on Hadaya and the pi than it is on anyone else what happens throughout this movie that night uh visser he breaks into he breaks into ray's house after they have their conversation uh and he steals abby's pearl handled pistol uh which she had retrieved from her house earlier she carries it in her purse now uh he sneaks down the hall and goes into Ray's bedroom and he sees the couple lying there. And then the screen cuts to white. Can I ask you, he uses the credit card trick to just 
slide right past the deadbolt and open the door. Were yeah. deadbolts just terrible back in the eighties? It must not have been. It must not have been the deadbolt. It must have been the other, like the handle lock or something, because that doesn't seem. I don't know. I don't know because I remember trying that after I saw it in movies. I was like. Oh, I got like a library card. Now I can just unlock every door. Right. And I was in my house, like sliding it up and down and jamming it into the door, and nothing was happening. I was like, wait a minute, are movies lying to me? <laughs> it's just not as easy as it seems. So, yeah, after he does this, it cuts to white, and then we go to Dan Hedaya's office. And Dan Hedaya's back at the bar, and Visser comes in, and Dan has four dead fish just sitting on his yep. desk. No refrigeration, no plate or anything, just four dead fish hanging out on the desk. That he apparently caught in Corpus Christi and brought back to the middle of Texas, wherever they're at. Uh, which seems ridiculous. Well, I love that. I feel like I feel like when he was told to go fishing, it was kind of just a figurative, like, go on vacation, get yourself seen. Yep. But Hadaya literally went fishing. Yep. <laughs> and I definitely thought with the four dead fish... I was like, oh, okay, this movie, this is going to end up with all four characters dead. This is a four-character movie. We have four <laughs> dead fish. So I was I was already calling my shot there. Um, glad to see that wasn't how it happened. And it. this is where, um, this is where Visser, we've honed in on his lighter a couple times. But first he shows Hedaya the photos. Yes. And there's photos of them in bed uh, with bullets riddled with bullets yeah ray and abby uh laying in bed with a bunch of holes now as we find out later this is an airbrush yep who airbrushed this i think that this was all visser because he's later he's in his dark room and he's got different versions of the prints that he's burning so i think he he tried it a bunch of different times Oh, okay, that's a good read. Because I was trying to figure out, like, in TV shows, it's always like, there's always, like, a shady veterinarian who you can go to that works as, like, an underground doctor. Right. So I was wondering, like, are there, like, shady kinkos where you could go back then, like, after midnight and get somebody to touch up a murder photo for you or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> the other thing, one of the bullet holes that shows is, like, going through Ray's wrist. Yeah. And if I was Dan Hedaya, I'd be like, so you shot them both while they're sleeping. How the hell do you shoot them in the wrist? Yep. <laughs> Is that a defensive wound from when he was sleeping? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, but I guess it was the 80s and you don't really question if photos are real because of course they're real. It's a photograph. Yep. There's no Photoshop. So Dan Hedaya, well, he's going to he's gonna get him his money. And he's, he's real condescending and dismissive towards Visser. Yeah. And he when he goes... To get the money out of the safe, he slides the photograph into it, even though Visser has asked for the photograph back. Uh, Marty slides something else into the envelope and gives Visser the money in the envelope kind of all at once so that Visser won't look. He's taking it, which I don't know why Ray is taking it, because that seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Is his name Ray? Have I been getting it wrong? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, it's Marty. It's Marty. Marty. Okay, good. Yep. Oof. I was worried. Um, I don't know why Marty would hang on to that because it's, it's like the only evidence that could possibly link you to this kind right. of. And um, yeah, that was a strange choice. But again, it kind of in a similar way to Blue Ruin, 
we have so many small little pieces movie mm -hmm. in this movie um, that drastically change everything that happens. One of those pieces is uh, Visser leaves his engraved uh, cigarette lighter on the desk. And he leaves it on the desk. How does it get covered by fish, though? I don't remember. It's, I think, the second batch of fish that he sets down. He sets down on top of the lighter, and then Visser, like, slides the fish back across the desk towards him. Uh, but the the camera definitely finds that, that lighter a couple times and draws attention to it. That's big one. So I believe the next scene that we get to is um, Ray's going to head over to the bar, right? Yes, Ray shows up at the bar thinking that he's going to... And Ray is going to steal uh, some rare coins? From the from the till, it looks like. I think he's gonna take whatever he can get to get his last two weeks pay. To to cover yeah, his last but two those, weeks. Those looked like somebody's like coin collection, which keeping that in the register at a bar is a really weird place to keep that. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. What that was supposed to be. <laughs> it was weird. Uh, but yeah, and then he sees that the light is on in Marty's office. Mm-hmm. And so he goes and knocks, and he goes in, and Marty's not moving. So as he's walking towards Marty, this part confused me. He kicks her gun. It's the pearl-handled gun, and it's on mm -hmm. the floor. And as he's walking, he incidentally kicks it. And in the edit, there's a gunshot, and I wasn't quite sure what that was. I guess the gun was cocked when from when Visser... Uh, oh, because we skip that detail that Visser shoots Marty with oh, the yes. gun. Oops. <laughs> That's kind of important. <laughs> yes. Visser shoots Marty with the gun before he leaves. Um, Once then, in the right side of the chest, opposite yep. the heart. Yep. So. And then chucks the, the gun across the floor. So I don't know. I, I don't have that much experience. So with I wasn't guns, sure if it was that. Them. I wasn't sure if it was, if it actually even fired or if it was just like, Ray kicking it made him then think that there a gun sh that gun had gone off or something. I don't know. I I really yeah. that one that one confused me. That edit. I feel, I so feel like Ray... he kicked it and, on accident and it went off. Yeah, so he kicks it underneath a desk, and then Ray walks over and sees that Marty's dead. And then it makes sense now why he does this, but at the time. Ray starts touching the gun and handling the gun and putting evidence. Uh, Ray, why are you touching things? You're putting evidence everywhere, dude. Get out right. of there. But it makes sense later that um, because he sees it's her pearl grip gun, he just assumes that Abby was a uh, angry ex-wife who had been pushed too far and went over there and shot him. Yeah, I mean, her first line in the whole movie is that she's going to shoot her husband. Yeah, and I love that you pointed that out because I honestly did not catch that. And so that... Yeah. And again, that makes a lot more sense of why Ray goes down this path. Because this is when the movie... Coen Brothers movies always have a point of no return. And I feel like this is it. Is when mm -hmm. Ray, instead of calling authorities or just leaving, decides that he's going to clean up this mess and protect Abby from, from being found guilty of murder. And his first instinct is to take off his windbreaker... <laughs> To try to clean up this big puddle of blood. Like, sop it up with his jacket. With a jacket that is explicitly... The only purpose is to not absorb moisture. Yeah, it's like it's like a nylon windbreaker-type jacket. It's 
Yeah. And he and so, winds up like dribbling blood across the floor between the body and the bathroom. This was such a blue ruin moment for me of somebody not being able to think clearly in a drastic mm-hmm. moment. And so they're just fucking up as, as did Dwight in the previous movie. Cause Ray, yeah, he's leaving a complete trail of blood. He's has to go back and forth from the sink. Like there's no way he's going to be able to clean this up with any kind of, um, any kind of thoroughness, you know? Right. And as he is trying this, Maurice shows up in the front of the bar with some woman that he's trying to pick up, even though the bar is closed that night, Maurice is going to get them free drinks at the bar. And once again, on the jukebox, he puts on the same old song, the four tops tune. He puts it on again. So you get the blood dripping off of Dan Hedaya's hand. Mar- or Ray goes and cleans up the puddle. And then there's more blood dripping off of his hand. All the while, this doo-wop song is playing. And it's just, it's darkly common. Tarantino did that a lot with the juxtaposition of happy music with mm-hmm. disturbing things. And uh, when used properly, it's really fun. Uh, this is a good moment of that. Um, yeah. So Ray finally gets Dan Hedaya in the back of his car. And as Dan said before, he said, there's an incinerator in the back of my building, basically telling Visser, just throw their bodies in there, burn their bodies up. So right. I thought for sure Ray was going to throw Dan Hedaya into the incinerator. Nope. But uh, nope. He throws his bloody... Um, windbreaker in there and drives off down the highway. Mm-hmm. Remind me, so we're going down the highway at night. Why does Ray pull over? Because he hears Marty groaning from the back seat. That's right. Like he hears kind of a, a gasping, bubbling sound and it freaks him out and he jumps out of the car and runs into a field. I love how scared he is that he <laughs> runs 30 feet away from the car and lo- like like there's a monster in the back seat. Yes. You know it's Dan Hedaya dying, but he still looks terrified. Yeah. It's just because he, he assumed that he was dead the whole time, not dying. Which is funny because earlier in the movie he said that, or maybe it's later in the movie, he says that when you shoot someone, you make sure they're dead. That's the one thing the service taught me. Right. <laughs> and yet he never makes sure that Dan Hedaya is dead. Yep. And uh, so Marty, uh, oh, or I mean Ray, Dan, Marty's crawling away, and Ray puts the car, gets back in the car, puts it in reverse, puts it in drive, and he's going to mercy kill Marty with the car. But then he decides, eh, that's kind of harsh, so yeah. I'm going to put it in park. I'm going to get a shovel out of the back. I'm going to mercy kill Marty with a shovel <laughs> with blow the to the head. Oh, shit, there's a truck coming down the highway. Okay, um, I'm going to get Marty in the car and drive into the middle of a field. And now I could definitely mercy kill him easily. But no, now instead I choose to bury him alive. Oh my god. D- Ray, what are you doing? Ray is so bad at this. He was never cut out to be this kind of guy. No, never. Because he doesn't he doesn't have the stomach to actually do anything, you know? Well, and a note of when he grabbed Marty's body from the bar, he had taken Abby's gun and hidden it in Marty's pocket. Uh like he was going to bury the the gun with the body. When he, after he's driven into this, in the field is plowed. Like the field that he drives into has already been, it's got furrows um, and it's ready for planting, it looks like. Uh, so you definitely see these big, <laughs> these big tire tracks going across the field. 
I was thinking about that. the fact that there's if, if a farmer went out there and just saw a big rectangular flat patch on his ground, he's like, well, that looks like a grave. Yes. <laughs> I, I was like, I like to imagine that Ray spent eight hours then putting all the rows, mounding up all the dirt back, <laughs> getting the car out. And then Ray gets into the car. Now, this is definitely just the Coen brothers fucking with the audience, but the car won't start for like 10 seconds. Just because right. the Coen brothers just, I think they're just toying you with, toying with the idea of, oh, so if, if it rains, it pours, right? Yep. If everything's going wrong, then we might as well make everything go wrong. But again, and, that was very similar to Blue Ruin with the car thing, where yep. you get stuck with a car that then implicates you, or, you know. When Marty was being buried, he tries to pull out the gun from his pocket and tries to shoot Ray, but it just keeps landing on empty chambers every time, every time he pulls the trigger. Uh, which, and, you know, you're trying to do, like, mental math then of, okay, there was three bullets in it, and Marty got shot once, the gun went off once. Uh, I don't know if it, if it still adds up, because it should have been on the last bullet, but... That's true, yeah, because, yeah, there was only two firings of the gun when mm-hmm. Ray kicks it, and when Dan had it shot. So, oh, that, that's interesting. Maybe... Maybe there was one left if he kept going around. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, maybe it was the second and third bullets, not the first and second bullets. I guess that makes sense. Uh, yeah. But yeah. And so... I believe it's at this point we cut to. Um, is this when Ray calls Abby at like five in the morning? Yeah, he calls her. She's now found a new apartment. Uh, a really fucking cool apartment. Yes. It's one of those industrial art studios with just like a gigantic open floor plan. Yeah, really cool looking spot. Also, her apartment number is 411, which is what you dial for information. information and this movie yeah. is all about misinformation. I don't know if there's anything there, but I I liked that. If the Coen brothers were doing that, I got you, Coens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, Ray calls her and basically is just like, I love you so much. You're the best. Uh, we can be happy now. And she's clearly like, what What are you talking about, dude? Yeah, like he woke her up, tells her he loves her for the first time, and she's like, great, what's wrong? What's going on? What's yeah, happening? This, yeah, and when you get a call from someone at five in the morning like that, it's like you're either drunk or something terrible has happened. Yep. If you're going to be... <laughs> emotionally unloading on me like that at this hour. I think it's it's around this point that uh, Visser realizes that his life's missing. Correct? Yeah, we get the we get the scene of him in the dark room burning the different versions of the of the photo that he had tried to make uh, that he didn't use, and he discovers both that his lighter's missing and that the photo is missing that uh, Marty had kept the other photo and put a employees wash your hands sign in the office, yes. <laughs> which again. Kind of funny, just wa- the whole wash your hands of blood thing. I don't know. I yep. think Coen brothers like to fuck around with little little pieces like that, you know? Before Visser goes back to the bar, there's a great scene between Abby and Ray. Because Ray shows up at her apartment after he calls. Uh, and he's clearly, like, struggling with what he's done. And he's kind of falling apart. He's thinking that he cleaned up after Abby's incompetent killing of Marty. Abby's completely oblivious to what's going on. Uh, Ray thinks that she's trying to play him rather than find out information. Like, Ray is 
he seems like a man who is falling apart. Like he can't handle what's happening. Frances McDormand is wonderful in this scene. This is where she really shines and the movie switches focus to her and her experience throughout this whole thing. Because up until this point, it was the Dan Hedaya show and then he died and then it's the Ray show. And now we finally get to see how is how is Abby experiencing this? And yeah, she looks when Dan shows up, or, um, excuse me, Ray. She looks terrified, but also mm-hmm. really confused about what she's saying. He's saying, and she looks just she's playing three emotions at once, and it's wonderful. Yeah, they're they're talking at cross purposes the whole time, and it's like they're having the same conversation, but they're both getting different things out of it. It's great. This is Visser goes back to the bar, and he sees that Marty's body is missing, and he decides to break open the safe. Uh, he doesn't find his lighter. He ransacks the place. And as he's like trying to hammer his way into the safe, Abby walks in the front door of the bar and Visser hides. So everyone is showing up at the same place. It's almost like a slamming doors uh, farce type comedy that's happening because everyone is right on top of each other trying to figure out what happened because nobody has all the information at this point. It's really fun at this point because as the audience, you, you have a pretty good idea of what's happened now and all the pieces are lined up, but you're still seeing the characters try to put it together. So you get that mm-hmm. dramatic tension of us knowing how much danger Abby is in and she's completely oblivious to all of this. She leaves the bar and then goes to Ray's house. Ray's house is entirely packed up. Ray tells her, I have a, that, we need to stop yeah. you there. I'm 34 years old, so I'm not that old. Ray's using cardboard boxes. <laughs> totally fine. I use cardboard boxes when I move. But he's tying them with twine. Right. That blew my mind. Do people use twine to move? I don't think so. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen that before. He's not, was masking, was moving tape, masking tape not around in... 83 or whenever this was 84 no it seems twine was the best technology that they had for for holding a box close he just has a big old buck knife out to cut his twine as he's tying mm-hmm. them and she, she walks in and sees the giant knife and is just like uh you okay dude <laughs> and this is uh ray tells her uh the truth is he was alive when i buried him and she starts freaking out she sees the the back of ray's car and the, the seat is covered in blood. It's covered with a towel that a bunch of blood has soaked through. Uh, she goes to the other bartender to try to find out what happened. Uh, Maurice, the giant. And uh, he she bothers him at his house. And there's a great little detail. Do you notice he's got like an eye mask? Where clearly yes. he had been sleeping in the middle of the day. And there's a sticker on the mask that says, uh, please wake for meal service. So it, this was something that he took off of a plane, like <laughs> the last time he he flew southwest or whatever. Ah, oh, I love that. It's a do not disturb eye mask, like you would have for a hotel, but it's for a flight attendant. So you get yes. a reversible eye mask. Oh, that's genius. Yep. Also, at one point about Ray's house that cracks me up, he points out that there's a dead end at the end of the street. So twice <laughs> when people storm off and peel out of his house. They then have to do a U-turn and drive uh-huh. by it again. And that just really cracked me up. Just the <laughs> thing of when you want to drive off angry from somewhere and then you realize, that, oh shit, I have I went the wrong way. I have to go by right. it again. 
I can't go back there twice. It's embarrassing. <laughs> um, this is also during Ray and Abby's confrontation. There's an it shows them on either side of the frame, and then the front door is in the back of frame. And suddenly, a newspaper comes spiraling towards the camera. And, yes. And you see it just from the background flying at them. And it's this kind of ominous thing where it's like these characters are not aware of this jump scare that's about to happen. But yep. it was really, it reminded me, obviously it was a roll of newspaper, but it reminded me of like something from Friday the 13th Part 2 where you get characters in the foreground who are oblivious to what's coming for them in the background. Oh, yeah. And that's... And the sound cuts out for a second, like right before it hits, like all the audio drops. Yeah. Right before the newspaper smacks the door. There's one other really cool shot around here somewhere that I believe it was from it's it's a transition with Francis McDormand from Oh yes, yeah. From the bar to the bed, I believe. Yep. Where basically she's standing in the bar and then she suddenly leans back and then she's on a pillow and and then she's in her house. Um, yeah. I can't, it's hard for me to explain it, but it's a really cool effect. Yeah, it's a, like a close-up shot on her, but you can still see the background. And she falls backwards and the camera goes with her. Almost like a Snorri cam type yeah. of look. Uh, and, but when she lands, she's on her pillow on her bed. Uh, and that's one of those that I'm like, I have no idea how they did that. That's a great shot. It reminded me of, those old spice commercials where they would do the the 30 second take and the guy yeah. would go through eight different locations and it was all just a matter of moving set pieces around him the actor really wasn't moving much at all it was just camera right. movement and set movement uh, it reminded me a bit of that but i love in camera tricks like that are so cool and that's stuff yeah. that we've seen with we've seen it with a bit with pie definitely with fellini um it was Stalker. We saw some stuff. Just, I love stuff like that. That's one of those things that, like, the Coens don't normally do super flashy stuff, but there's a few of those moments in here that uh, you can tell it was their first film and they were getting their yucks out that way. The, the was technical. this was this their first film? Yep. Wow, what a, what a way to come out of the gates. Oh, yeah. Holy cow, I can't believe this film. It feels... Like, it's in veteran hands. And I think just because it's the Coen brothers, I just assumed that they had been veterans forever or something. You know, everyone has to have their yeah. first movie. And that's, if you watch the extras on the Criterion channel or on the, on the Blu-ray disc that came out, uh, they show a lot of the storyboards that they did before they ever shot the movie, which are beat for beat what you get in the movie. Uh, and they also shot a fundraising trailer beforehand, kind of like, Jeremy Sonier did with his uh, technical test, his camera test. They shot a fundraising trailer that was scenes from the movie. Uh, and they look almost shot for shot how they do in the movie, but they're with different actors. And they clearly knew what they wanted and what they were going for. Uh, and basically, the actual trailer is a recreation of their original trailer with the new footage. It's really well done. Wow, that's really cool. I, I love yeah. I love to see stuff like that camera test, or I'd be interested to see that trailer. And just to see the artist transition from it's a nugget of an idea to then, okay, now I have the budget, now I'm going to make this thing for real, you know? Right. Just, just to see what did they change, what did they keep the same, 
um, what looks embellished, or did they keep that low-budget look? Um, you know, like, uh, Blue Ruin was only, it's like $450,000 budget or something, and it looks it, you know, it, it looks real small budget, but I think that was definitely an intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the budget on Blood Simple? I'm real curious about that. What, one and a half was... million, supposedly. Yeah. It still boggles my mind how expensive movies are. Even something like this, where I feel like there's not that much going on as far as set pieces. But you got right. you got the bar set. You have tons of actors to pay. You got just adds up, doesn't it? Yeah, and I don't know how long their shooting schedule was on this one. Um, but also they shot film, which uh, you know was the only option at the time. But definitely, uh, they hired Bar- Barry Sonnenfeld. It was one of his very first things that he had ever done. Uh, who you know he went on to uh, direct movies. He directed Adam's Family movies uh the men in black movies wild wild west they got like a great craftsman at the beginning of his career yeah i didn't yeah i picked up uh at the very end that son and field shot that this yeah like oh well look at that another another kind of titan of the industry involved early on here yeah. I believe at this point we are approaching the end of this movie and we, yes we are so, back in abby's apartment correct uh rig went to the bar and that's where Visser finds him. Visser starts following him from the bar to Abby's new apartment. Uh, Ray finds the picture, so he he knows that there's another person involved. How scary would that be? To see oh, a, yeah. a photo of somebody having staged your death. Yes. I, I wouldn't... I mean, Ray is already not thinking right, but I wouldn't be able to think straight after that. I no, don't think that Ray, everyone is out to get me. Poor Ray. Uh, had Ray just stopped at any point and been like, hey, Abby, did you do this? Like, right. <laughs> it would have helped him so much, but he makes so many assumptions. Even right now to the very end where he didn't confront her earlier about it. And now, even in her apartment, he still doesn't, he doesn't get it. Abby thinks that Ray is the threat. Ray thinks someone else is in on it and following him. And that Abby might also be in on. Yeah, and little does he know that Vasser Visser is uh, scoping them from a building across the street, and yep. unfortunately, there's no curtains on the windows. Yep. And so Ray tells her to turn the lights off, Abby. But clearly, Abby does not want to be in a dark room with a mad a madman, as she perceives. <laughs> so she turns the light back on, and in an awesome squibbing. Uh, Ray, the right side of Ray's chest or stomach explodes, and it's pretty awesome. And the window behind him breaks. Like they do it all in one shot, where the bullet was supposed to come through the window and shoot Ray, and so they break the window and squibbed him at the same time. I imagine getting that timing on a squib explosion and a window charge must be so complicated to get those to go off. You know, within one or two frames of each other. Yeah, that's nuts. Uh, but really cool. And so this is really fun sequence to end this movie where uh, Frances McDormand is going into survival mode. And she turns the light off and Visser makes his move across the street. And he's going to go inside to to finish things off. Mm-hmm. And uh, what? so he goes in and he doesn't seem too concerned about where Frances McDormand is at this time. 
He does seem concerned with finishing Ray off. What does he kill Ray with? Is it a piggy bank? I, I believe it's a piggy bank, but it's in the shape of a manatee, it looks like. I... The, the only reason I... Because when he finally smashes it, coins fall out. Before that, I had yes. no idea what it was. Yeah, it looks like a manatee for some reason. Which, it would have been nice if that was introduced at some time before. That that was something that she picked up and brought with her to her new apartment. Yeah, I was... That was one of one of the very few things that I felt was a little bit sloppy in this, where I didn't quite... I mean, whatever, it's just a weapon, but it just seemed like such an important weapon and such a random weapon for him to use yeah. to finish off a guy who... We have no indication that Ray is alive on the ground, but... Right. But Visser has learned his lesson, I guess, that you don't leave a man for dead, you finish the job. Yep. And so he supposed... Or... Um, apparently smashes Ray's head and then he goes into the bathroom looking for Abby and this part is awesome so Abby escaped out the bathroom window and climbed back into the apartment next door uh, out the side of this building which you see it's like a sheer drop off the side but she managed to like squirrel her way around to this other window I was really worried that either she was going to somehow be on the window ledge below him and like pull his mm -hmm. tie, yank him over, or had been hiding in the apartment and like lifts his legs and just dumps him out of the window. And both of yeah. those would have been really, really disappointing. I did not see this coming. So, so Visser, being a pretty smart guy with good a good hunch, he figures that Abby escaped to the next door apartment. So he reaches outside the window and then from the exterior opens, slides up the window and right as he sticks his hand in Abby slams the window shut on it and then takes that knife and rams it through his hand all the way down to the hilt and pins him against the windowsill and it looks excellent yeah it's amazing I have once again no idea how they did that how you get all the fingers moving in that in that hand it's ah. a hand inside of a glove so they're hiding it that much yeah, so but yeah, the all glove the fingers are moving individually. I noticed that too, because like the glove clearly is hiding whatever they did, but I don't feel like this is the kind of movie that would have animatronics. So I feel right. like I feel like this must have been some like really simple Hollywood magic trick yeah. with this to get to get the finger movement. Because it looks real and it looks agonizing. And this is one of yep. those moments that Similar to Green Room, maybe on a bit bigger of a scale, but I, I can imagine at this moment of this knife going through my hand. And once again, when there's not actually a whole lot of violence, but when the violence happens, it is so intense and visceral that it draws you into it. It makes you feel it. And, and it's so bloody when it happens. It's not just like, you know, a little bit goes off. When Ray gets shot, there's a, a big squib. When Marty gets shot, there's a huge puddle of blood underneath his underneath his body. Uh, it's always, you know, the worst case scenario for the cleaners the next day. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, they, and that's something that the Coen brothers carried with them through a lot of their movies, is that mm -hmm. when the violence does happen, it's graphic and it's visceral. And you get that in Fargo and you get that in No Country for Old Men and some others that mm -hmm. I can't think of off the top of my head. But again, it's cool to see 
and artists set the tone early in their work for what they will then pursue throughout the rest of their career. Right. Even in Big Lebowski, in the parking lot fight scene, it's surprisingly violent and happens really fast uh, when they fight with the bowling ball and, oh, and, and Walter and smashes one of the... Yeah. Bites bites somebody's nose or something. I does he bite yes. someone? Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, there's some stuff, and I was like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and I love that when Visser, it's 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 a little moment, but it really sells the gore for me. Is when his hand gets stabbed, he has such a violent reaction that he breaks the window with his ear, headbutting it. Yes, and, yep. and that little thing added so much for me yeah like it's not just an actor screaming or whatever but just that convulsion that he had when the knife goes in was really really cool so <laughs> this or abby's standing in the other room it's completely dark she doesn't quite know what to do she's kind of staring at the knife and then boom boom he starts shooting holes through the wall and she's just standing there the Abby yeah. duck or run or do something, please. Jesus Christ, you're just standing there. And the dude shoots nine holes through the wall. And then he, uh, this, I like this part where he, he uses the, I didn't, I thought he was trying to kill her, but then he's using the holes in the wall to punch through the wall so that now he's hugging, he's trying to be able to basically bear hug the building in order to get uh -huh. the knife out of his hand. Really interesting that his his left arm's going through an interior wall. His right hand is going, like, outside of the house. It, it, it's a yeah. very strange predicament this man is in, and I've never seen anything like it before. Yeah. Yeah, he uses the bullets to weaken the wall enough to punch through it. And the, the shots where he is punching through it, um, like, there's little puffs of dust and stuff as he punches the wall, and it just looks really cool. It does. I love and, the shafts of light coming through the bullet holes. Oh, the, they're giant bullet holes, too. It looks really cool. Yeah. But yeah, uh, this is M. Emmett Walsh. when he He's really doing some work in this scene. I, I'm fully buying it. Yeah. And uh, so he, um, yeah, he, he's eventually able to punch through it and pull the knife out of his hand. Abby has snuck back into her apartment, and she finds her little pearl-handled pistol where Ray had left it before. Oh, remember that and one bullet that we hadn't accounted for? Yep. <laughs> there it is. She she slumps in the corner, uh, like with her eyes on the bathroom door, and the buildup of him crossing that room and it cutting back and forth between the two of them is just, the movie has you at that point, and it's so masterfully done. That's one of those things, I'm like, how is this a first movie? That they would have the confidence to cut back and forth to kind of lengthen what really would take two or three strides to maybe get across that bathroom, they lengthen it and like really draw you into the cat and mouse. I love, and I love that Frances McDormand, how she slides down on the floor. It's, she's still terrified. You know, it's like the mm -hmm. only thing she can do is to brace herself against the wall to kind of steady herself. Um, and so, yeah, she doesn't, I love that she does not hesitate for a moment. As soon as she knows that he's crossed, to the point where he's in front of the door or behind the door from her perspective mm -hmm. shoots him straight away yep. no hesitation no words nothing and this is where the ultimate joke of the movie comes out she thinks she just killed marty yes so oh she still somehow thinks that 
after being buried alive or whatever the hell Ray did. I don't know what she thinks about how Marty may have survived, you know? Mm -hmm. But, and then Visser, even though he's dying, can't help but just crack up at this. Yeah, she says, I'm not afraid of you, Marty, and Visser thinks this is hilarious. It's pretty funny, to be honest with you. And she, what, what does he say? What's his response? I don't remember. Yeah, she says, I'm not afraid of you, Marty, and he says... Well, ma'am, if I see him, I'll be sure to give him the message. <laughs> oh, it's such an awesome moment. And then we we see, like, the look of horror or whatever, of just surprise and shock on Francis McDormand's face. And we get Visser. What, I don't know what to think of this ending, bud. He's lying on his back, mm-hmm. and he's looking up, and he sees the plumbing going because he's underneath the sink. Yep. And he sees some water dripping down. And he has kind of a smile on his face, like a death smile of kind of peacefulness. And and then the movie's over. Well, the the last thing that happens is on those pipes, that plumbing underneath the sink, a little drop of water comes down and hangs for a second. And when it's hanging there, once again, the song, same old song, starts up again. And then that drop of water drops, presumably onto his face. And I think it's like the ultimate indignity. Like, this guy, even though he was kind of an evil mastermind, like, is brought low. Nobody gets away clean in this movie. Even his death is, is he's mocked in death by thinking it's the wrong person. And then the sink drips water on him. It's, you know, kind of cosmically ridiculous. I I, I wasn't sure if that, my uh, my only other reads on it were... Who knows what the last thing any of us are going to see is, but it's probably not mm-hmm. going to be profound. Right. It's probably going to be something really mundane, like plumbing under a sink or something like that. Yeah. And then the other, the only other thing I could think of was um, just the title and the amount of blood in this movie and blood dripping, and then you have a water drop at the very end. Um, well, and I did notice... Um... Both times they cue the the Four Tops song later in the movie, the one time there's a close-up of blood dripping off of Marty's hand, and then the second time there's a close-up of the water dripping off the bottom of the faucet. So I think there is some kind of connection there that they're drawing, even if it's just visual. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely open. Um, I think the way I like to read it in the end is that the fact that we see water dripping at the end might mean that this this particular cycle of violence is over. We're no longer mm-hmm. getting blood drip. We're just getting to water again. Um, right. Because, you know, Francis is... She's clear now. Um, there was kind of three predatory men in her life, and they're all dead now. Yes. Because Ray... And... I don't... I don't think her life would have turned out well with Ray at all. No, he's very... She she mentions at one point that he doesn't talk much. Um, and Ray kind of sarcastically says, well, thank you. She says, you're like Marty, you don't talk much. Except for when he's saying... He, when he's not saying things, they're mean. When you're not saying things, they're nice. Um, but you kind of get the idea that... Because, like, he says that he loves her and she didn't respond to him. Until she thought he was going to kill her. <laughs> then she says, I love you too. Uh, and 
which is a repeated line of people telling her that no you don't mean that you're just scared but that that moment yeah. happens in her dream and then it happens again later with ray yes where ray says i love you yep. and she says i love you too and he says no you're scared yep and um yeah ray ray seems like he's his own version of a sociopath you know these three guys are all deranged in kind of a different way the fact that that ray over uh having known this woman from afar and then uh basically a one-night stand with her was willing to take her into his house upend his whole life and then ultimately to bury a body and then to kill a man and over this woman and never once talked to her about any of it yeah exactly he just assumed that's what he had to do <laughs> so I think the world might be better off, honestly. Ray, yeah. bur Ray buried a man alive. Let's not forget. <laughs> that's, that's He's no of, angel. That's one of the gnarliest things you can do. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, and on that wonderful note, that brings us to the end. You have any final thoughts about these two movies? I, I, I will um, say, I, I think, had we led the first, had we led Blood Simple into blue ruin then you would almost mm -hmm. get that adulterous backstory of the parents and then in blue ruin you would see then the effect that that has 10 to 15 years later so blue ruin is almost Ooh. like it could have been a sequel to blood simple yeah i can see that but excellent pairing i was so i was i, I know i talked to you about blue ruin or you talked to me about it i've never seen um blood simple before these movies went hand in hand perfectly i was really really happy with it yeah they're both basically pitch black kind of uh i think that blood simple is more of a straightforward neo-noir and uh, blue ruin kind of deconstructs a lot of the nora elements um, in a revenge type story and plays with them so it's a slightly more modern updated version but even the cohen is like finding those little moments of dark comedy in the middle of this movie uh, you know it's a very modern Cohen, Cohen brothers sort of uh, touch to it was really fun and for, for being from the 80s it didn't feel dated it just shows how talented those guys are I, I never in a million years would have guessed this was their first feature and the fact that it is and it's this tight that you and I barely I mean we don't typically look for things to be wrong or flawed in movies that's not really right. what you and i do which i'm really happy about but the fact that you and i barely spotted anything and this is a complicated movie um yes there's a lot of moving pieces and the fact that most of the character motivations made sense outside of one or two just i'm really impressed with it they edited it themselves with the help of don don weigman uh, under the name roderick james really i did i didn't i didn't know that yeah, it's been their pseudonym for their editing work for years until I got found out. Uh, I think because he got nominated for an Oscar. Roderick James got nominated for an Oscar and then didn't show up at an Oscar party. <laughs> and they, then people started realizing that, wait a second, no one's actually ever seen this guy. And That's awesome. Kind of the open secret came out. As I have, I never edited a feature or anything, but I, I've, I've edited a lot of stuff in my life and shooting live music and bands recording albums and stuff like that 
So yeah. I really appreciate when an editor is willing to spend time in the edit room because my God is editing the most tedious thing in the world. And the fact that any uh, director is willing to go in there and spend time in that dark room agonizing over frames, it, it, it says a lot about their dedication and their passion for that movie. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I think, you know what? I think Jill and Ethan Cohen might have a shot to have, to have a successful career. Yeah, I think these guys are going to be okay. Maybe. Yeah. And uh, Saulnier, what does he... Does Saulnier or... You said Macon Blair has something in the works. Yeah, Macon Blair has Toxic Avenger in the works. Saulnier has something. And he's getting back to writing. He did not write Hold the Dark. Uh, he oh, he didn't. Okay. only directed it. Yeah. Which I think that's kind of why it fell off a little bit. He's written everything he's done. But Macon... Macon was one of the writers on Hold the Dark. That's interesting. Okay. I thought, I thought they would have... Have you seen that movie? Um, I I started watching it and then fell asleep because it didn't make any damn sense. There's some good violence. There's like one big violence scene at the end, but yeah, there's like a some wolf cult thing in there or something. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, Saulnier has one in works written and directed by him called Rebel Ridge, a high-velocity thriller that explores systemic American injustices through bone-breaking action sequences, suspense, and dark humor. If that doesn't sound like a Jeremy Saulnier movie, I don't know what does, and I am excited. <laughs> oh, and it has Cromwell in it. Ooh, nice. Oh, yeah. So I am in. Let me see Cromwell. Oh, yeah, he's so intense. So intense. That's uh, another note on the Coen brothers that uh, I knew that there was one movie from early on in their career that they wrote. I believe uh, one of the Coen brothers wrote it and uh, Sam Raimi directed it called Crime Wave. And it's this movie that like no one's ever seen because everyone involved was embarrassed about. Uh, but really? it happened between Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Yes. It's this That's, like, weird That kind of sounds... Uh, it kind of sounds like the the Romero movie that's coming out about the old people yeah. at the, the circus or whatever. Yeah, it was 1985. The Coen brothers and Sam Raimi wrote it together, and then Raimi directed it. And uh, it was before Evil Dead 2. It was before Raising Arizona. It was them trying to do kind of a slapstick thing on their own. And it did not work. I haven't seen, well, they did Big Lebowski, which is a straight comedy, but I feel like a lot of their other mm -hmm. comedic ventures, like Men, it's, Men Who Stare at Goats, Hail Caesar, I haven't seen those movies, but I, I feel like when they try to go comedy heavy, they tend to struggle sometimes. Whereas if they have comedic moments in an otherwise darker movie, they tend to do a lot better, it seems. Uh, Men Who Stare at Goats wasn't one of theirs. Was it not? Uh, no, it was... Uh... Edit. Edit. <laughs> it never happened. This moment never happened. That's fine. I'll just keep. Just say burn after reading. Uh, I have. I. I don't know. I do not recognize the guy who directed Minutes Stare at Goats at all. Grant Heslov. So whoever you are, Grant Heslov, way to go, bud. <laughs> all right josh we got to get out of here this was supposed to be a quicker right. episode after stalker and annihilation but somehow oh, somehow i think we might have gone longer 
<laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Well, you know, this is going to be a long podcast. If you don't like it, I'm sorry, but yeah, it's just we're, we're, we're digging into the cozy vibe. It's just That's... how it is. Also, I love long podcasts. I do too. I it annoys me when a podcast talks about a movie for 20 minutes and then it's clear that like, oh, we hit our time limit. We got to move on to the next portion. It's like, no, 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 no. We j you haven't even scratched the surface of that movie. Exactly. So yeah. I, I like it. I like an exhaustive podcast. I do, too. This is fun. We're going because I have not gone plot beat by plot beat with people often. This is really fun. Completely <laughs> breaking these movies down. I want to say breaking down, though, because I like that we're. We're finding good things in these, you know. Well, we're also yeah. choosing. We're also choosing good movies to watch, but that helps. I like finding the moments of craft and, you know, that kind of stuff as well to bring up that goes along with the plot. It's it's pretty good. I think that's just what, what you have to adapt to become if you want to be a horror fan. You gotta take, yeah. You gotta take the good with the bad and remember the good moments and just try to enjoy the rest that are not so good all right bud well i think this lazy river has officially brought us to our exit point so <laughs> we need to get out of here so i'm gonna end it here <laughs> thanks for listening to nashville ca i hope you come back again i hope you have a wonderful day and we will see you next time for me sean perry and josh Ickes. take care everybody